0: We'll mm-hmm. Welcome, everyone, to episode 128 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Thornton, and on this week's episode, we're going to be recapping some of the films that we saw at this year's Sundance Film Festival. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott,
1: how are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, much fresher and more well-rested than uh, our you and our guests today, probably, considering the number of movies I watched in proportion to you guys. But um, hey, you guys are going to have more interesting stuff to talk about probably because you saw just about everything that the festival had to offer. Um, but I had a great experience with, uh, with you know, what I chose, even though there are a couple of movies that I wasn't, I, if I if I were to do it again, I would, you know, switch them out for different movies. But um, I, I think, I, I, I still uh, like my approach of, you know, keeping it relatively limited because my time was limited last weekend for one thing. And in terms of, you know, money wise is obviously a factor. And then just getting fatigued. I was, I was still feeling fatigued. Like I I was even feeling fatigued, like on Sunday night. Right. And I'd only watched four movies or something at that point. And I had a couple to get in before the end of the night. And I was just like, okay. I mean, and I, you know, I still, again, I really enjoyed the experience. I think it went off incredibly well. I think it was incredibly well run by the Sundays people like all credit to them for how smoothly everything, went i never had any sort of technical issues and i all the movies were in 1080p beautiful quality so um you know i have no complaints there and it was fun to the festival experience but
0: yeah yeah, i'm good yeah that was one of the elements that really i don't know i I didn't think about it all which is exactly how you want it to be was the technical elements because you know i had Mm -hmm. a couple like buffering issues like early on but uh, i was mostly using like the app on the Apple TV that I have, which I think is probably a little bit more vulnerable to being buggy buggy buggier earlier on than just using the browser. And then uh, I switched over to the browser for a little bit, then switched back and didn't have any problems with it. So yeah, it was really amazing that, I mean, I know that they are affiliated with Sundance and they have their own streaming service, so they have a little bit of technological capabilities there, but probably nothing like the scale of doing a film festival. But as you alluded to, Scott, we do have a guest joining us today to talk about Sundance. Apparently he's not completely exhausted from spending four and a half hours with us talking about uh movies from 2020 so he's back again and we have Paul yama joining us today paul how are you doing
2: yeah it's been such a long time since i was on the podcast so i figured i would come back and grace you with my presence but no um i was i'm excited i mean sundance again like i you know i'd planned to go in person this year and obviously when that didn't work out i was bummed but then i pivoted um and then ended up watching uh, probably more movies than i would have been able to if i went in person i
0: think um, yeah
2: I think it's funny that uh, Scott Harvey earlier is talking about uh, the lawyer, the professional lawyer among us is the one talking about financial hurdles. So what, what are the odds of that on a, on a podcast?
1: <laughs> if I, if I, if I told you how much I was making, you wouldn't be scoffing. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well,
0: I, I, you know, I was, I share the time constraints that Scott's talking about. Um, but luckily I hadn't started my new job yet. So I was able to sit on my couch and be an absolute uh, bum and watch six movies a day, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So uh, that was a pleasant, a pleasant, uh, I guess, um, coincidence that I was able to work that out with. Uh, hey, you were outpacing
2: off. me until the very end of the festival, so I was like, "Oh wow, this guy is going crazy." I thought I was <laughs> watching a lot, and I was noticed like you really like a higher number than me the entire time, and then I, just at the very end.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, I, I yeah, unfortunately, I had to I had to work Monday, <laughs> Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, so I couldn't watch like four movies during the day before like sneaking yeah. a few more in at night. But yeah, I was going strong. I was, I'll, I'll admit, I was a little bummed I didn't get to thirty, but uh, I'm going to count the. <laughs> indie docu-series Seeds of Deceit that I watched and call that my 30th, so uh, I made it to 30, there you go Whatever it takes Yeah, exactly, well, I think the format for today's episode is going to be a little bit different than a normal episode when we're reviewing movies, of course, so Uh, but I guess to lay it out for everyone first we're going to talk about sort of the big award winners from the festival, there's Two of you know that are probably the, the biggest winners of them and maybe even one more so because it also got acquired um, and then a couple of the acquisitions as well we'll talk about and then we'll shift over to just talking about uh, three movies each that we want to talk about that we enjoyed and that we think are worthy of conversation here uh, on the podcast and we'll wrap things up by, for Paul and I going through our top top 10 list from the festival so with that uh, why don't we just start with probably the biggest thing out of the festival it was it debuted on Thursday night, which I think was maybe a little bit of a surprise. That sort of the buzziest movie premiering on the very first night uh, wasn't something I, I was expecting. Maybe because there was other more buzzier films going into the festival in terms of talent mm-hmm. and directing and whatnot. But Coda uh, won four awards in the U.S. dramatic competition. Directed by Sean Hader, uh, is about a coming of age drama. Uh, I guess yeah, coming of age comedy drama about a girl who is the only um, hearing member of an otherwise completely deaf family and it follows sort of her arc through the senior year of high school up until she's going to college and it won i think it won so it won best directing it won the audience award it won the uh, grand jury prize and i'm actually forgetting the fourth one off the top of my head right now um i'm pretty yeah, I don't sure recall either yeah one. i don't remember it the, fourth was the one, first it was.
1: What, film to ever do, ever win all of those
0: Right. Yeah, there was a fourth award that it won that I'm forgetting, one of the other special awards um, that I'm forgetting. But guys, Scott, why don't we start with you first? What did you think of CODA? I mean, this is a movie that we all saw and that if I'm not mistaken, we all were pretty positive on. But I'd love to get more of your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I did enjoy it. At the same time, I, I'm a little um, surprised that this is the film that won not not the audience award. When I saw it, I thought I bet this is going to win the audience award because it is a crowd pleaser through and through. Um but the grand jury prize, yeah, I, I I don't know. Just because I think the film definitely has noticeable flaws. I think that um, there are some cliches. I didn't super buy into the romance between uh, Amelia Jones, that's her name, right, the lead actress, um, and, uh, and Ferdia walsh Pilo of Sing Street fame. I, I didn't really think that there was much chemistry or much going on there in their relationship. Um, But what really sold me on the film as it went along, uh, because, again, at at the hour mark or so, I was like, yeah, this is fine. Like, you know, I was thinking three, three and a half stars, something like that. Um, And then I think the family dynamic, they really, you know, lean hard into it in the back half of the movie. And, you know, because I think they realize that's the emotional centerpiece. And, And that's the most interesting part of the movie, because, you know, the relationship between the hearing person and their deaf family is not something that we've really seen that much depicted. I mean, we had a great movie about hearing loss last year with Sound of Metal, but this is coming at it from a different angle. Um, and I think the performances are really good. I think Troy Kotzer, who plays the father, I think he was a real standout for me. Um, I, yeah, he, he, he brings a lot of warmth and just a lot of emotional range to his performance. Obviously, he is deaf in real life. You know, Marley Matlin, most famous deaf actors, plays the mom. Um, and then the, there's the brother as well, is deaf. I forget the actor who plays him. But and then Amelia Jones, I think is Daniel Durant. I believe. Yeah, I think uh, Amelia Jones is really strong in the lead as well. Um, you know, I, I think that I, I don't know. I, I expected this, I guess, to be more of a of a me film because I think the music combined with the coming of age <laughs> um, elements are is some is a combination that usually really works for me. Um, I just think he couldn't overcome quite some of his cliches, um, even though in the end it's a total winner. Like, I was inspired, I got emotional in the last, you know, few minutes in some of the climactic scenes, even if you see them coming or not. Um, I think the movie goes a long way with its sincerity and earnestness. Um, and I think that's more more than enough to make up for those, you know, bumps in the road along the way. So it's it's solid, but still surprising that it is the grand jury. Winner. <clears throat>
2: Yeah, so it's funny you talk about how this is such a family movie. And I think the other award that it won was an ensemble award, I want to say, for the cast. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is um, the Sundance, Sundance-iest movie to be at Sundance this year. Like, it's the ultimate sort of um, version of that. I, I think it's, like, the platonic ideal of that, really, though, because, like, again, I think it's, it's heart's kind of on its sleeve, but its earnestness, like, is, like, for me, enough to overcome a lot of the cliches and the familiar beats within the story, like... Yeah, I don't know if the romance really necessarily works in the same way, but I thought like the family dynamics were great. Um, yeah, I think that Troy Cutzer gives like what maybe the funniest performance you'll see the entire year. Like his, his physical acting is like pretty unmatched, I think. Um, one thing I really appreciated too is like the depiction of fishing culture and how specific that was and how that felt authentic. Like it didn't feel um, like just sort of something tacked on to give them a characteristic. Like it felt like that was really a part of the movie. Um, and they talked about that i, I watched the q a afterwards and they talked about how seriously they took that how everybody learned actually learned how to fish and they were like actually doing like something very specific like they could have easily done like a more cinematic and and much simpler to learn type of fishing but they wanted to really get in there and mix it up and i think that um, that approach to the whole movie really is their desire to really go for it um, that's what made it such a winner you know and it's crazy that it like outsold the biggest you know seller in sundance history by like over like $5 million. But to me, like this is like the ultimate crowd pleasing hit. I wonder though, if on Apple TV, if it won't reach its potential, just because the audience there is so much smaller than other audience, you know, other. uh, and it's not necessarily a super buzzy project. Obviously it's swept, which is kind of crazy. Like, and a little bit of a bummer, I think the fact that one movie swept so many awards, but I don't know if, I still don't know if it's that big of a, of a prestige project where, I think some of the other stuff here with bigger names makes more sense for Apple. So it's a bit of a gamble, I think for them to take a risk on a movie like this, even though again, I really liked it. Like I thought that like her singing was really impressive. I thought like, I didn't expect her to be that good of a singer. Um, But it's, it's definitely a, it's a movie that has tons of flaws, but I think it almost doesn't matter a ton. Um, I wish I would have, you know, obviously like being at at Eccles for like the premiere of this would have been amazing. Like just the audience reaction. And I'm sure it would have got a standing ovation. But, yeah, it's, it's a, one of those movies that, like, in a regular year for Sundance, I think, would maybe have won maybe just the audience award or something. But I think part of it, too, is just being in quarantine. This is such a movie that people are like, oh, like this is a familiar, warm feeling that we're really missing.
1: Sure. I would, I would add, too, about the comedy in the movie. I think it is a bit broad at some points, which is not something that usually resonates with me. But I like it in the context of, representing a deaf family because, like, it allows them to, it normalizes, you know, it, it, it depicts them in, like, a way that a hearing person would be depicted in, in this type of comedy with the same sort of, you know, somewhat raunchy humor at times, um, you know, like the mom and dad are constantly having sex. Um, and I like that they just sort of normalized that from, you know, uh, uh, deaf characters and um, saying, hey, Deaf people do this too. You know, it's not It's not just uh, Seth Rogen or insert your own schlubby uh, comedic actor here.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I got out of the Q&A too there was, was talking about how almost the sort of lens of the film being like authentic to the T about deaf culture and bringing that into like the family dynamics there and bringing that into it as a part of it was that you're able to do like essentially unique kinds of humor with that, right? Like you're able, like taking ASL as a language and using that to create something that is both authentic but also like funny in the way that they were describing a lot of things the way they were assigning a lot of different elements of the movie. And so taking full advantage of that really felt, to Scott's point, like it really felt like it kind of progressed beyond just being a film about deaf people, right? It progressed to something that was just truly, a you know, coming of age, you know, comedy drama and yeah look it was a crowd ple- crowd pleaser is probably the uh the I don't know the low-key way to put the way to put it because you know everyone that I felt like I see talk about this movie is that like sure it's not perfect but you know love it it's really it's really fun and I felt the same way and was just really charmed by it overall I think that the way I was charmed by it was similar to the way I felt charmed by you know something like a love simon a couple of years ago um, in terms mm-hmm. of it's like, community. I think this is much better than that, actually. Well, yeah, no, so personally. I was yeah. going to say, I I agree. Agree. It so, reaches
2: a little hot, like bigger heights for me.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I think, I think I like this more than that, but I, I think that the feelings that I was feeling in the moment, um, were, were very similar. And I think that this one will stick with me a little bit more than that. And, uh, you know, I look forward to whenever this does get distributed via Apple, um, Apple TV plus, I think it will be a uh, fun, to, fun to rewatch. And I can you know, definitely see myself revisiting it more in the future. I do think that it's an interesting point around the notion of whether, like this, whether this was a good property for Apple to knock. It, but I think it's definitely or to to lock to lock down. I think that's an interesting point. I think that their portfolio so far is not around, you know, this type of this type of particular genre within film. They're mostly trying to do stuff with varying levels of success, like Greyhound or you know something else that's more like pre- like prestige drama with like you know a high built talent on it. And I wonder if the they're just trying to stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that, you know, if you're trying to create a service with, with, with content that like complements each other, right? I don't know how this necessarily fits in to that puzzle to like keep people uh, on your service. Once they watch, you know, if someone watches Greyhound, I don't know why I'm latching onto that one so much. Uh, are they really going to be like, Oh, sweet. Then the next movie up for me is going to be Coda. This is really going to be thematically appropriate here. And not everything has to complement each other. Right. But, I do think that that's how you kind of get people's attention and, and then hold it further down. And So I wonder if their play is to try to diversify, get more subscribers that way. Um, but the weird thing about Apple is just the, like, does anyone actually like pay money for Apple TV Plus yet? Like honestly, like I feel like they just give away with all their with all their Apple products, they just give away you know, years of Apple TV Plus and I'm not sure anyone's subscribed to it. They're actually generating revenue, which is whatever, right? That's, that's definitely one business plan. And Apple certainly has billions of dollars to throw around for uh, no good reason, but just an interesting idea. And I, I definitely think that this film probably could have done better on a different service, but like this on really Netflix think. would crush like this oh, would yeah. crush on Netflix. I
2: think. Yeah. So I, I think about it it Netflix immediately.
0: Like, yeah. And I, I don't know if, um, I, I mean, I'm sure Netflix was in that bidding, bidding war. And I wonder if you know, they're scoffing a little bit, a 25 million price tag for this kind for this type of movie when they can go out and make like five to all the boys movies and, uh, you know, probably do, the equivalent in terms of subscriber ratings but yeah like i mean you compare this
2: to palm springs which is what it beat for the record i think yeah. palm springs is like just a better movie really and like i think that's like that makes more sense at that price tag almost to me um but you know i'm glad this i mean i'm so glad this got you know distribution on something that's relatively wide so that again the more people that see this the better just because again it's a movie I, I have a hard time imagining a lot of people disliking um
0: i think you know the people might be lukewarm on it but i feel like the, the floor is pretty high yeah i think ultimately the question is Will this win awards? Probably not. Um, in terms of like prestige awards at the end of the year, like maybe it, it, it might get nominated for like a Golden I Globe. I could see Marley Matlin
2: potentially getting nominated.
0: You never know. Yeah, I mean, because she's won before, she has that. She has that pedigree. That's yep. that's a fair point. Um, I just wonder if this will get the sort of downstream attention. I saw someone um, talking about they should just drop it right now and qualify it for this awards season, um, which <laughs> I thought was an interesting. An interesting uh, tactic. I don't know if I agree with that necessarily, but it does have a lot of hype right now. But uh, yeah, anyway.
1: I, I, I don't know if you know the Troy Kotzer stands much of a chance against uh, you know heavy hitters like Jared Leto, for example, this year in the award, in award season. So it might be best waiting until next year when there isn't such a powerhouse going up against him.
0: Maybe we'll leave our code of conversation there. But no, it's a really a really enjoyable film. I think this is definitely one that people should see when they get the chance to. Uh, it's it's really pleasant and you know, if something coming out if it does come out in the middle of, you know, still if we're still in the middle of COVID and you know, the if it does get dropped before the vaccine proliferates, et cetera, I think that this can definitely scratch an itch similar to what Palm I felt like Palm Springs scratched last year. Um when I was able to watch that and I forget May, June, whenever that dropped and um it definitely was a a nice reprieve from you know it was like March. I think it was like right when the pandemic hit I want to say that it was it really? Wow.
1: Okay. So yeah. It was pretty early, I think. Yeah.
0: Well to that point, then you know I think it really will be a, a nice a nice uh, re- reprieve for people uh, to just spend you know an hour, fifty minutes, however long this movie was, just sort of enjoying the the world that it, that it creates and yeah, very authentic and and very enjoyable overall. I'm listening to the to the
2: songs that they sing in it too lately. They're they, it turned me back on to something like Joni Mitchell's on both sides, love on both
0: sides. So mm. you know, shout out for that. That yeah. speaks to uh, what the film is capable of doing, and that doesn't that doesn't surprise me at all. The only the other so the other biggest award winner uh, going from the U.S. dramatic category to the world dramatic category was Hive, a foreign language film. Uh, It's like I don't actually know if the filmmakers are Kosovo, but the film is based in Kosovo and tells the story of a woman in in a Kosovo community who, you know, her and this entire community basically have been, you know, put on hold for a decade or more, waiting on their husbands to return from the Kosovo and civil war. And there's a lot of sort of history that I wasn't super aware of. I think I was actually the only one that it was able to see this film. But I caught this film and it was I just found it to be really powerful. I don't want to talk too much about it because I think, although not necessarily so like because it's spoilers, there's no like big plot twist or anything like that in the film, but the film is just a lot about um, you know, society, culture and specifically around women coming together and you know what they're able to do and accomplish and the way they're able to evolve the societies they're in that might be stuck in the past and stuck with an old way of living uh, and feeling trapped because this movie is about, you know, it's set about 15-ish years ago probably um, around that time in that time period after the Civil War ended in Kosovo but um, this town feels very stuck in the past in that way and so I think it's a really interesting exploration Uh, very heavy drama for sure there's a lot of um, terrible things happening But at the same time, uplifting with the story, the the direction the story goes, not in a way quite like Coda, but uh, uplifting nevertheless. And this won three awards. Uh, It won the Audience Award. It won the Grand Jury Prize. And I believe it won for directing as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that was kind of a a refrain that I think we saw a lot of is that I mean, no, no other film won three awards. But even, you know, in the in the US documentary category, you know, the Summer of Soul won the grand jury prize and the audience award as well so there was a lot of overlap this year between those two categories um but yeah i I don't i I guess i'm the only one who's giving thoughts on this but i would definitely check out hive when you get the chance i don't believe it's been acquired yet but definitely a movie worth checking out and i'd be curious to see you know especially given the content i think that that type of material around something i want to say sensitive but also just like Still, like, relevant, or something like, uh, you know, the Kosovo and Civil War. It'd be interesting to see if it makes uh, a run for, like, you know, international films and the different international film categories, you know, this time next year in award season, assuming it's acquired and and put out and then um, put forth in the end by, I've, again, I'm forgetting t- technically which country it would fall under, but it might actually be Kosovo. But that would be really interesting. Well, yeah, I was going to say, a filmmaker, the
2: filmmaker, Blurda Basholi, is from Kosovo. So I think it would be, like, native production. It feels like, yeah. at least, it's kind of like, you know, like, how um honeyland was like north macedonian kind of yeah I feel like it's it feels like that kind of thing
0: yeah and and in common with that movie as well there is some beekeeping she's uh she one of her one of her odd jobs that she does is uh harvesting honey from bees so some overlap with honeyland i was there. i was surprised though that this one just
2: because yeah me too um pleasure and the pink cloud were the two in the world dramatic that i heard getting a lot of discussion and sort of buzz out there so the fact that this really swept was kind of surprising to me i guess like when you describe what the movies are about, like this is you know, dramatic and more like a little more serious than those other movies, I guess. But I mean, the pink cloud is, that's a pretty serious movie. Yeah. Well, it it sounds more prestigious at least. So it's like the more classic, like this, like makes sense as an award winner. Um, But I was surprised because I didn't really hear many people talking about Hive over
0: like the week. Yeah. Same. I, I, I don't even think, I mean, not that I was like, on my phone, on Twitter, like on film Twitter, trying to see what people were saying. So I'm not a great source for this, but I mean, frankly, I, d- I didn't really feel like anyone was talking about it. And I-, I saw the pink cloud earlier in the week. I'd have been really surprised if that had won an award like that film is just kind of all over the place uh, for me, I'm sure. And-, and also just like way too relevant, probably for its own good. Um, <laughs> Accidentally funny, too. The, the yeah, I know that film crazy. was written in 2017 and filmed. In,
2: yeah. I think if people don't know, it's like basically takes place in, in like a world pandemic essentially. And it's like, Something that you know they didn't obviously plan for, but like the crazy coincidences happen, I guess sometimes.
0: Yeah, it was definitely definitely a wild coincidence to say, to say the least. But yeah, so it was a bit of a surprise for sure. But I think that you know, compared to the other dramas in that category that I saw at least, um, I can I can see it now that I, now that I've seen it, I, I can definitely understand. Um, very curious about the whole audience award versus. Uh, grand I mean grand jury I understand the di- differentiation there but the audience award feels like so such a weird one this year um, mm. with like the vir- in the virtual festival and and it's interesting I think it's probably not um, a surprise that there might be so much overlap between the audience award and the grand jury prize this year so um, yeah I, I think there were other movies in that category that I probably enjoyed watching a little bit more um, mm. but I can definitely see why hive was an impactful experience for people. Who yeah, did I was, and, and I was people bummed before. that I missed pleasure
2: both times, like on the first run and on the second showing, like, it was essentially sold out both times. Um, I would have, that's, that's one that I heard a lot of amazing things about and I'll, I'd love to watch at some point.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know if it, I don't believe it's been acquired yet, but I'm sure it will no. just based on purely on that, on that metric alone that ever, that yeah. it was selling out. ASAP. I don't know how like the allocations of tickets work because i'm sure the different movies have different allocations i mean just looking at Letterbox, like they have to have different allocations because there's yeah. some films that have like 1600 you know watches and then like pleasure has like 500 i think but it's sold yeah. out both times so there has to be different allocations for like the size of the film but i think just based on the fact that it- you know, if you were at the festival, like it, having the experience and seeing it selling out, like you're probably interested in that film for whatever reason, and, and then at that point, just negotiating the price. But yeah, so. other big acquisitions from the festival. We haven't talked um, about this film yet, although I'll spoil it and say we're going to talk about it later on. Like Flea, which one? Um, which I think that won the Grand Jury Prize in the world. Um, the world in documentary. The world, yeah. in the world documentary, it didn't win the Audience Award, I don't believe, but it won the it won the drama prize there. Um, it was acquired by Neon. Uh, and they also acquired another documentary called Ailey or Eiley, I'm not trying sure to pronounce it, but I didn't see that one. But they acquired two docs at the festival: there, Summer of Soul, which we briefly mentioned was acquired by Disney, specifically Searchlight, um, and will likely go to Hulu. It seems that way. And then they also grabbed another doc called Playing with Sharks, uh, which they'll drop on Disney Plus via the National Geographic. Right yeah, yeah. So that that was a really that was a really fun watch. I I saw that one. Really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know, just just like a really gorgeous gorgeous. Um, biopic documentary type are really going through the entire life of, you know, one of the, one of the, probably the forebears of sharks in cinema. Yeah. So really interesting stuff. Uh, passing, which is a movie we'll also be talking about later on was acquired for 15 million by Netflix. Couldn't think of a more Netflix acquisition to be honest, out, <laughs> out of a film festival. Um, although I think that Coda would have, would have fit right in, but I, it's not the kind of money I feel like it's not the kind of movie they spend on at the festivals. Um, Jockey, which was a film that won one of the special prizes in the U.S. drama competition, was acquired by Sony Pictures. That was an and early. That was a surprise because I think that was acquired before it had even come out, like it, it had officially
2: premiered at Sundance. Um, and that's one that I'm like hearing a lot of buzz about clifton collins jr maybe even being positioned like for a run at the academy award like probably coming out later in the year because it's sony picture classics but yeah um, that's one that i was bummed i missed too just because i heard the cinematography is pretty unreal and his performance is terrific but i haven't got a chance to see it
0: yeah i was i was if i'm being honest i was literally flipping a coin between watching jockey as my last home of the festival or um homeroom the documentary Mm. homeroom i chose homeroom um, but it was a tough choice. I enjoyed Homeroom. I don't know if I would have enjoyed Jockey more. We can follow up in, a, in like nine <laughs> months or ten months when this is released and see if I feel feel good about it still. The last few to run through are a little bit smaller films. And this one was also acquired before. Th- I shouldn't say this is necessarily a smaller film. But this was acquired before the festival by Bleecker Street, which is Together Together, um, mm-hmm. which feels like the um, probably the Palm Springs of, of- it's, a, it's the second Sundance Sundance movie. I think yeah. so far this year <laughs> feels yeah, very much in that vein. Yeah, male comedic actor with sort of a burgeoning young yeah. yeah, exactly. Probably better known for TV roles, um, but yeah, that's a that's a fun film. I was going to watch that on second screening, but it was sold out, so I couldn't watch it. Um, it's yeah, it's just it's a sweet traumedy. Like it's not anything I think overly. You know, it's it's a
2: little pre- it's pretty perceptive about like you know platonic relationships. I think it's got some in- some cool insight, but it, it definitely didn't like blow me away necessarily. Patty Harrison though is is a is a star in the making. I think. Yeah, I will. Um, you 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 saw it right you you did watch yeah, it yeah I did
0: yeah. yeah I liked it I liked it quite a bit yeah it was it, it ended a bit abruptly but like overall I really I liked it oh no, it would have fit right into twenty twenty so many films ended very abruptly in twenty twenty I felt like yeah. um, and then the last few just to throw out Magnolia acquired two one before the festival that was Glitch in the Matrix and then Crypto Zoo anything to say about that because I know that you were, yeah, you were thinking about I, talking about that uh,
3: one yeah
2: I, I did not like a Glitch in the Matrix I know that like it's already I think it's already out on VOD actually and I'm seeing people watch it at this point. Um, I did not was not a fan. That's I probably not a like good sign, was, to be was, clear. That's, that's not a good sign that film is, ar- <laughs> is already out. Um, but no, time. I mean, Crypto Zoo, I thought, was really, really interesting. And I, I liked it quite a bit. It's like, you know, it's it was described like this in the preview, but it's like a hand-drawn, independently made, American animated film for adults. And that's something you don't really see. Um, and the, I mean the director Dash Shaw's last movie my entire high school is sinking into the seas on Netflix for I think the next week and a half or so um, so I would definitely want to watch that but it's like super unique animation style kind of like mind-blowing in, in certain points it's got this great mythology it's got a good like Bell voice performance and um, I li- I liked it quite a bit it's definitely like it's so different than so many animated movies that I've seen it almost feels like a little bit of an ode to like a Don Hertzfeld like a, maybe a little less existential but something like it's a, such a beautiful day it felt like in that sort of vein of like um this unique kind of animation
0: style it's a little little more bare bones at points but um i thought it was really interesting yeah and the last one the nick cage special prisoners of the ghostland was acquired by rjle um wh- why not put that out drop that immediately why
1: not just go ahead and build the hype for it <laughs> that's uh, a, one that i regret film. that's one of the two if i had dropped two uh, the two that i didn't like it for other films one of them would have been Prisoners of the Ghostland,
2: I think, that I would have done. Uh, I don't know if you missed a ton. It was somewhat interesting. Um, I think the director has done many, many better films, I'll say.
0: Yeah. The The funny thing, I, I guess, like, really all you need to know about the film to know whether or not, like, you'll at least be intrigued enough to watch it, whether you like it after you watch it is another question, is, like, Nicolas Cage walking around, like, steampunk Japan with a suit that will detonate in five days his genitals are like glowing and at one point in the film he yells testicle so like that's all you need to know about this film yeah Yeah, it was uh, a wild wild ride okay I think with that I think we'll move on to the movies that we want to talk about the movies that we think are you know worthy of conversation here over the next you know hour or so and Paul why don't we just go straight to you first what's the first film you'd like to mention yeah for me there was a a clear standout from the entire um,
2: festival. Um, It's the movie I was most excited about. It's less interested going into it. Um, And the film is called the world to come. This is Mona Fastvold's new film. Uh, It's a period drama, um, sort of period romantic drama starring Catherine Waterston and Vanessa Kirby. Um, I personally saw a lot of like a portrait of a lady on fire, um, sort of mixed with like a Terrence Malick sensibility in this. So it's essentially about Catherine Watterson plays this woman who's living in the American frontier in like the middle of the 19th century. Um, she's married to Casey Affleck's character and they, they live on a farm together. And like many women of this period, it's like, there's not much for her to do really. And then when, you know, she meets a couple from a, a farm town over um she she's just really struck i think by vanessa kirby's character who's married to christopher abbott you know another person who had quite quite a sundance this year um but i just found it the emotions of this so overwhelming and so powerful um i think a big part of that too is the um, like daniel blumberg score is amazing in this and it's like a, a theme i could not get out of my head and to me like it's so gentle and quiet and i think it'll you know i don't know if it'll hit the same for a lot of people it does for me it's like this is kind of my kind of movie, um, but I love that sort of build up to with their tension and there is this like quality of um, of dread kind of creeping throughout the entire movie because it just doesn't feel like this is a story that will end in a certain way. Um, but I just think like this again, this portrayal of like um, this kind of passion and love kind of frozen in amber, frozen in time, because um, you know for them like it's it's hard to imagine this is permanent, but. Um, in those moments, it just feels really special to me. And um, I think Katherine Waterston is is incredible in this movie. I really, I mean, the four lead actors are all really good, I think, but um, I was really moved by her performance and like the patience of the storytelling, um, all that stuff I think was, was quite powerful. And um, again, it is pretty slow and gentle and it's like, um, not like a movie that's going to be a big crowd pleaser or anything. It's not like the crazy passionate sort of romantic um, drama I think that people might want but um, it is like this expression of of love and difficulty and it's like someone two people who their lives are like pretty much indebted to their husbands and they're trying to find something for themselves and I think like that's what makes it really special
0: yeah I definitely hear what you're saying around the, the vibes of something like a portrait of a lady on fire I also managed to catch this on the last day of the festival I don't think I was as taken with this movie as you were I definitely strongly, strongly prefer Portrait of a Lady on Fire over this. I think it's actually a much better film. I, but, see, I do prefer it, but I think, like in terms of energy, that's the sort of energy that this is yeah. capturing. Yeah, and I mean, through no fault of their own, there's it feels like there's like a lot, a lot, like several films that have tried to capture the same energy. Again, I think that all those films were already being made, of course, when Portrait of a Lady on yeah. Fire came out, and it's not like they're trying to rip rip it off. But there have been a lot of movies with similar energy, and I definitely think this falls in that category. To me, it feels like this, it's like trying to be this mixture of how I was reading, at least, of A Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is also, you know, a fairly quiet film. But, like, even going further than that, like, trying to, like, take something, like, a first cow and and fuse its sort of, like, you know, tendencies of trying to be quiet. But then it just, like, doesn't know how to be quiet. I feel like this film, like, is constantly throwing something at you. Like, it, I never really feel like yeah. I got a time to reflect uh, d- during the film on, on what I'm seeing, and that's one of the things that really worked for me in First Cal and also Portrait of a Lady on Fire, just the constant sort of voiceover, da- you know, narration, diary reading, however you want to describe it of Katherine Watterson's character, I just found like really grating at some point. As in, like I actually really just like to sit in quiet and think about the big scene I just saw rather than have.
2: You I know, think that's also just your thing with voiceover though. Like you have, I think such a disinclination towards voiceover in any, I feel like in any material I, that it, it, I think you you were in the bag for, uh, to be against this, at least a little bit.
0: Yeah. So to, to an extent. Yes. But here's the thing about, about that is that I actually really do like the voiceover at the beginning and the end. I think that those are times in the movie where the voiceover works really well. It's not just telling you literally what you're seeing on screen. The problem that I have with voiceover and why I think that it, it does like go astray, in the middle third of the movie with it, with its voiceovers that it, it's just telling you what's literally happening on the screen. And I don't, and I understand that they, they've like invested in this like narrative format of like Catherine Watterson's character reading her diary or reading what she's writing in her ledger uh, over. But at like some point, like you, I feel like they'd overcommitted to that more than like more so than more than they needed to. And it blunted the, like, I think the strong power that it had in key moments with yeah narrative that felt unnecessary and that kind of just ripped me out of it. Am I someone who that, who that negatively affects their experiences more than others? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely is. Yeah, um, I was going to say, think that, I think couldn't that's imagine true.
2: you watching uh, like Terrence Mallet, like something like the new world, which I actually just watched for the first time and loved. I think part of it. I mean, maybe the reason I connected this so much is because I was carrying some of that energy from um, watching and loving the new world, which I just watched last week. Um, it's got a little sort of like the, the voice, the voiceover is like it definitely in that style. I think. Yeah. Um, I think all the actors, though, especially, are really terrific. Like even Chris Rabbit, who's not in the movie a ton, um, he's doing some really interesting stuff in this movie. Where yeah. like his character is like this person who clearly has struggles with like his mental health, but obviously in this era he doesn't have any way to deal with that. So it's like him finding some sort of outlet and what that manifests in the way that affects his relationship. I felt like the Ford leads all Hedrick like, really interesting interplay, especially this, the scenes they'd have together. I think.
0: Yeah, and I will say this: I, I do think the acting was really strong. I think. I, I I do lean towards thinking that I think Vanessa Kirby is like maybe a little bit miscast in this film, but really? with wow. that, yeah, I, I do. I do think that I think she's just like not of that era, you know, like I just like the way that's, it, I think that's the, that's the thing is she yeah, stands out point. so much yeah. is like that you're
2: like, you're sitting at this, you know, the, this farmhouse and all of a sudden like you see her and you're like, whoa, which I guess is just the effect that Vanessa Kirby has in any movie really. But like, <laughs> yeah, especially in this, I think it's like,
0: wow this she really stands out and i think like that's what made her character like kind of make sense in the world yeah and and in like a a 12 months of a lot of christopher abbott i think that it's really interesting to see him doing uh, you know giving another really strong performance and but not also like but feel completely different from any of the other performances that he's given like oh yeah such a different such a different type of performance this is by far my favorite movie that that he did that he was in at sundance but i definitely don't think it was his strongest performance
2: at sundance i'll say that
0: yeah Yeah. So a lot to talk about, I think with this movie, um, I don't want to get us bogged down too much, but overall really good film. If you like things that are in the vein uh, or the energy of a portrait of light on fire, you're probably at least going to enjoy some parts of this movie for sure. If not, um, like it like quite a bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I I saw the trailer for this last night when I went to see nomad land and, uh, I think it looks really good. I think I'm going to like it a lot. Um, but we'll see. Um, yeah, it's coming to the same theater where I saw No Man's Land last night, which is like an hour away from me. Um, and I drove in a week, up there just, right? Yeah, in a week. Yeah, that, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Is that I drove up there this weekend to see No Man's Land, so I don't know if I'm going to uh, venture out and do it again, but it'll be coming to streaming pretty soon. So And I haven't uh, I seen Moda
2: Fastwell's first movie, but I think Christopher Abbott is also in it,
0: I believe. I think Christopher Abbott and Brady Corbett are both in her first movie. All right, with that, Scott,
1: why don't you talk about your first movie? Yeah, so uh, on Sunday night, I decided to, for the end of my festival, I decided to check out a couple of horror films. Um, the first one definitely did not enjoy. Uh, that was The Blazing World, Carlson Young's debut, directorial debut. Um, but uh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to focus on the negative. Um, but because the latter film I watched, while not uh, blowing me away, I thought was a really interesting film called We're All Going to the World's Fair. Um, from a director named Jane Schoenbrunn. Um, and this is a two character drama basically set in the internet age um, where this girl, played by a new- newcomer actress, Anna Cobb, her name's Casey, um, decides to go, you know, uh, participate in this YouTube challenge called the World's Fair Challenge, which involves doing some, you know, weird stuff um, as, oh uh, as many internet challenges of this ilk often do um and then it kind of just focuses on her the isolating fallout that she experiences from uh participating in this game you know it starts having psychological effects on her um you're kind of wondering oh you know is this something about the game itself or is this what she has done to herself by going down all of these rabbit holes on the internet, you know, watching other videos of people's weird reactions to the world's fair game. Um, And it's really, it's, it's an interesting film about loneliness because she's often the only person on screen. Um, It's very quiet at times. There's a really interesting sequence where she is being lulled to sleep by an ASMR video, um, which is kind of a really uh, unique scene, I think. Uh, But the other character, Michael J. Rogers, uh, plays uh, J.L.B., who's this guy that sort of comes across her videos online and ends up interacting with her. Um, And I think that relationship goes in some interesting directions towards the end of the film. The end of the movie, they start to sort of blur the lines between reality and fiction, which I find interesting. Um, I also think the start of the movie is really strong. It's just a, a still shot for about 10 or 15 minutes, Facing away from the computer, like just focusing on Anna, Anna Cobb, um, as she is basically going through the steps of participating in the world's fair challenge of, you know, deciding that she's going to do this. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think it's a little, uh, hard to follow at certain places. Um, it is pretty slowly paced despite being, you know, 85 minutes or so. Um, but I think it's a really interesting watch, especially for people of, uh, the internet age. Like I, I am not even as much as what I kind of what I'm talking about. I've seen reviews from people and, and a lot of people seem to really like this movie. Um that uh from people talking about how relatable it was like um you know j- just I think people even younger than we are who maybe you know grew up on the internet and on Reddit and the no sleep subreddit is apparently a big inspiration for this film. Um uh, and you know can relate more to just like these this doom scrolling that she's doing through like the entire movie um through all of these weird reactions and and ancillary content to the world bear challenge so um i think it's an interesting movie i think people should check it out i think it's really atmospheric there's there are definitely some scary suspenseful sequences in it um and while i don't know that all the parts add up to a completely satisfying whole, like i'm definitely glad that i saw it and um I hope that it finds a distributor, or, you know, maybe somebody like shutter or something like that might be a good place for this to go. Um, and because I think it, it deserves to be checked out and yeah, Anna Cobb is, is really, good, is, is really good. Really, really like fearless performance, especially from a first time actors.
2: Yeah, this is in the moment. It wasn't one of my favorites, but it's one of the movies from the festival that I find myself thinking about the most. And I feel like it will only go up as time goes on. Um, Scott kind of talked about how disorienting it was. Like I literally texted him after I watched it. I was like, did I miss certain parts of this story? Because it feels (laughs) like it sort of judders around from, from point A to point D to point G kind of thing. But I I was really impressed by it too. I think like you can tell this is made by someone who actually understands the internet with so many internet movies. It's like big boomer energy with like trying to depict stuff like YouTube um, or Facebook or Twitter. But like this feels like something that's actually from that place. it feels like eighth grade, right? Like Bo Bo Burnham, grade, I think, is a creepy pasta, essentially. Yeah, yeah it's kind of exactly. Yeah,
1: it's it's a creepy version, even down to like you hear the sound, right? The YouTube oh, sound, of yeah. Three, the three, two, one before it starts recording. Yeah. That is like you hear it throughout eighth grade. It gave me like big flashbacks to that.
2: And there's a there's a song in this in this movie. Put it on Spotify, you cowards! It's <laughs> yeah, an iconic <laughs> it's, performance. It's a wild, of, sequence, of an original, yeah. weird song. There's a really kind of wild sequence that involves a, um, a childhood, uh, um, you know, toy as well. That was interesting. I thought, um, it, it's really disorienting and it puts you in a weird place. And then I think it closes really fascinatingly. Like, I think it takes a slight turn in the last five minutes that I was really surprised by. And I, I didn't think that it would happen. There's a, there's one image, I think that, that Scott will know what I'm talking about of, um, that involves a computer screen that I think was really enduring to me. And, um, I thought that really stuck with me. And there's images and ideas, I think, that I just haven't seen in a movie before. And that's, like, always kind of special when you have an experience like that. Um, And this is something that I I definitely hope a lot of people um, in our age range, even maybe a little younger, watch this. Just because I think it is fiercely relatable. And um, it's got other themes that I think getting into might give away a little much. But, like, there's a lot of stuff about the internet culture that this really nails. And I just thought it was again, the, Yeah, the, the performance by Anna Cobb. I think the Alex G score is like really yes, unsettling. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's like a really great mood setter. Um, but yeah, I think this is like fascinating film. Like one of the ones I'm most excited to talk to people about just because I could see so many people having interesting reactions. I'd love to get like an old person's reaction on this, like someone in their 40s or 50s, like what <laughs> an would an they think of a movie like someone, someone who's 40?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, For, I have 40 I mean, year olds everywhere everyone. just cringe and yeah. pain. Yeah.
2: All our 40 year old listeners just clicked off. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, On
0: AM radio or whatever they listen I mean, to. We have so many
1: listeners to begin with.
0: <laughs> Man. That was, a, that, was, that was a rough sequence for us. I think. <laughs> yeah, I didn't catch this one. Uh, I'm look. No, I don't think anyone surprised. This is probably not my genre of film. But given the the good reviews from you guys, like, look, when it comes out, maybe I'll check it out. Absolutely. I don't think no, you'll like it's God, shaking it. Shaking his head. Quite honest. <laughs> yeah. Look, creepy pasta is definitely definitely not my vibe.
1: <laughs> but I've always thought that creepy pasta would be a good subject for harm. Like the freaking Slenderman movie that came out a couple of years ago. The main problem with that movie is that they just made a, a you generic. You can't see anything in the movie.
2: The main problem is oh, the lighting. It's but, some of the worst I've yeah. ever
1: seen in a main movie. But, like, but they just a made a generic, generic boogeyman movie instead of let's actually plumb the depths of the internet. Like for That's, all of the lore, lore that is the out there about That's for sure.
2: It's no the Bible, man. <laughs>
1: It's no, the snowman. Um, but they uh yeah, they didn't plumb, I think the race. did mythology. not have all the clues, so she could not solve this one. <laughs> there, there's a lot of mythology for the for Slender Man that they could have gone into. And I think yeah. this movie goes more down the route that I wish that Slender Man would have gone.
2: And I, I'm i stoked to see what Jane
0: Schoenbrunn does with their next
1: yeah. film. Um
2: yeah. because like they are such an interesting filmmaker, I think. Yeah.
0: Well, keeping with the the in, keeping it in the drama type of film, right? I mean, I guess technically a horror movie, but not going into the documentary features yet. I'll talk about my one movie that's, that is a, that is a narrative film and that is mass, which is, yeah, heavy going from horror to a heavy, to a heavier topic maybe. Uh, But the sort of the premise for mass is that, you know, it's been five or six years since this horrible uh, school shooting happened. And the parents of both of one of the victims and the parents of the child who shot up the school uh, are meeting for the first time in person and having a conversation. So it's very much in terms of setting. It feels like something that could be produced as a stage play. Absolutely. Um, it's mostly set in sort of a, a conference room of a church in the small rural town. Um, and it is really, uh, sort of an, an actor's, an actor's movie, a lot of, uh, really incredible performances from my perspective from, uh, all four of the leads. So you have Jason Isaacs and, um, Martha Plimpton, who play the parents of the one of the victims. And then you have Ann Dowd and Reed Bernie playing the parents of uh, the child who who killed uh, the other two parents son. And to me, this film started off in uh, on a really interesting tone. And I'm still questioning whether or not I think that maybe there's just like a little bit too much airtime before it gets into the actual brunt of the film because um, you do spend about 10, 15 minutes or so sort of just in the church as you know the sort of this, I guess like some coordinator or director of some sort is setting up the space for these people to come into. And um, but then from there, after you actually get the con- like the conversation with for the lack of a better word, um, sort of starts, it really just it really swept me away with this, you know, very much a, a kind of a talky piece about what it means to cope and deal with trauma what it means to get to move past the trauma that you've experienced, and what it means, um, particularly with this particular subject matter, what it means to be, you know, associated with, or in this case, the parents of someone who perpetrated a lot of trauma, um, specifically to the people that you're talking to. And I think it's a perspective that it's not that people don't think about, but people just sort of dismiss and don't give too much thought to when they're actually engaging with what it means to be the parents of someone who has done something like this. And I think one of the, some of the most interesting, you know, thematic elements of the film in terms of like issues that it explores or, or themes that it explores is what it means to, to be those two parents and what Ann Dowd and Reed Bernie are able to do. In the, and the journey that you see those two characters in particular go on over the course of the afternoon conversation, I just found really powerful. I wasn't, you know, I, I'd gone into the film and heard a lot of the buzz around And Dowd's performance. I mean, I think that there's buzz for all of the performances at one point or another, probably. But the one that I felt like had bubbled up to the surface of the people that of the reviews that I had been reading was really focused on And Dowd. And I can definitely see that. And I think one of the people that surprised me the most in this was, you know, her compliment there, Reed Bernie, and the experiences that his character had gone through. You know, there is one, you know, sort of monologue type uh, sequence in particular that really just kind of blew me off my blew me off my feet. But the directions that went a la something like, you know, particular scenes and, and something like never rarely, sometimes, always or things like that. with just these really sort of standout scenes that are very quiet um, and just sort of like lay some truths on you. Um, and I found that to be just really, really overwhelming. But that's not to leave out Jason Isaacs or Martha Plimpton either, who I think both gave really solid performances. And overall, you know, in terms of I I'll, I'll guess I'll just be honest, like in terms of narrative films, this was for me the best of the festival um, by a good bit. Uh, I don't think it was that close with any other narrative films in the movie from or in the festival for me. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, this eventually being acquired. It almost certainly will come out during award season. And, it you know, whether or not it, it delivers at the award shows, I think it will be in conversations uh, come this time next year. Uh, we could definitely get into to talk about like sort of the awards, the awardsiness of the film and whether, and what its limitations might be. But for me, I just found this a really affecting drama. I definitely expected it to be a hard watch, but I actually found it to be surprisingly more, not necessarily uplifting, but less dour than maybe I expected it to be in certain elements. And um, sort of like the beginning when I was getting towards the end of the movie, when it was wrapping up and you know, the, the couples were going their separate ways I thought, wow, you know, may- maybe it's over overstaying its welcome a little bit. But then the final kind of shot, the final moment, I think I found just really, you know, emotionally overwhelming. Where I, there's a there's different climaxes in the film that let you get that emotional release that is sort of building up and building up and building up. Um, and it was a final one at the end that I found that I didn't I didn't realize that I needed and definitely didn't realize that I wanted. And I really appreciated the last moment of the movie. But uh, Scott, I know you didn't, you didn't have the time to catch this or this wasn't on the list, but Paul, I know you did. So I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah. I think if you told me that Marty from cabin in the woods is directing a movie, this would be yeah. like very low on the list of expectations of what the kind of movie it would be. Yeah. Um, I actually like the kind of slow lead up with Brita wool, kind of this weird comedy of manners almost where she's yeah. trying to arrange the room and she's like way too overbearing and trying to control, yeah. like, you know, contribute or, you know, interact with too much of what's going on here. Um, Cause I think that leads into just the fact that neither of the parents knows how to like get into it, yeah. you know, they eventually do, but it's like such a weird, you know, subject to approach, but Um, it's funny because I heard going in and heard more about Martha Plimpton's performance in this. And so that's like one that I was more interested in, but um, I was most impressed by the the two women. I think for me is is I think that and dad and Martha Plimpton for me, like really brought um, a lot of kind of levels of variance. I think like Jason Isaacs is really good, but he is playing like the slightly more like, explosive emotional kind of um character that i think more i th- honestly just think more people will probably think that's think of that as the standout but to me something like and Dowd's, which is like a little more staid and like a little more even i think like what she's doing is really hard to juggle amongst like these kind of emotional scenes um oh yeah again i was pretty moved by it. it's a movie that like it feels like it started as a play but it wasn't necessarily and I know that a lot of movies that are staged like this kind of get dinged for like lacking like a cinematic voice. But I think to me, like a lot of the sort of intimate close-ups and where the camera's sitting at certain moments um, is what kind of distinguishes this as like that that's why this is a movie. It justifies itself as a movie kind of. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating movie, really, just to hear the, like what they're talking about, never mind the emotionality of it, but just the pure discussion itself, I think is kind of rife for, for intrigue. Um, and it's positioning these couples in these really weird ways. Yeah. Reed Bernie's interesting. His character is like, he's got yeah, maybe the toughest performance because his character is like, so I don't, I don't, don't want to get paper, into it, on paper. Like, on paper.
0: It's like not a character that you're going to, that you think you're going to like very much. Or yeah. You find a little for bit sure. Despicable.
2: And I think, but it's, it's way into the way he gets into the character, I think is really interesting. And then, I mean, it's clear that both couples, especially um, Martha Plumpton and Jason Isaacs are struggling with this thing of like, they want to let go, but they don't want to let go at the same time, and there's that tug and um, and pull. And I think like that's the most interesting tension in the movie. Really, is like this desire to to move on, but also like this like not wanting to give up on um, on their past and stuff like that. Um, and it's again, I think I, I think this will be one that it, people really connect to. I think this is the kind of like talky, explosive, emotional drama that really connects for a lot of people. Um, I totally get like this being your favorite. Like I would have. Put a lot of money on that. I think like it's got those sensibilities. I think that, um, I think that you tend to gravitate towards. But um, I think that yeah, I, I can see this like being pretty popular with a lot of people. Um, and I don't think it. I don't. I see any way for this to be like something that turns people off, really. Because um, it's really like, at, like it is pretty emotionally intelligent. I think it's not necessarily being too broad. Even though like it gets broad at points, it's not painting with a broad brush. I think so. Like yeah, I thought it was a really effective um emotional drama it is draining to watch though it is like oh man just thinking about this stuff and hearing them talk about it and some of the emotions that they get to it's um it's a lot but i i think like it's cr- it cr- it is basically set in one location and like it kind of flies by still
0: yeah I mean, yeah do you play is- about- oh sorry go ahead yep i was just gonna say that even
1: though i didn't see this um this is the other movie like i said if i switch the two out that I didn't like for two other movies, I would have picked this one in Prisoners of the Ghostland*. So I'm really excited to catch up with this one whenever I can. And I yeah, love and Ann Out* that- too. I'm a huge leftover stan. So.
0: Yeah, and, and to the point about Fran Kranz, who directed this film, yeah, like, it, it definitely it definitely justifies itself as a film for me. Look, I, I don't have a problem with things that like seem staged for yeah, theater yeah. to go See, on. I do sometimes, and I, I, th- this one didn't bother me as much. Yeah, I was going to say, but I really don't. I think it's really, really, it, it's like, it'd be like a lazy critique of this movie, because I think there's just so much going on with what they're doing with the camera, and then moments where it cuts away there's also a point in the film where it changes its aspect ratio uh for a very particular reason i think um that i mean like we could probably speculate a bit about what that might be the best I'll- aspect ratio change since disney's brother bear <laughs> i was gonna say since wandavision <laughs> but sure we'll go with that um <laughs> but yeah no really good film and scott i'm looking forward to you getting to see it whenever i mean look it's probably going to be a, wh- a ways out but well, whenever that yeah. does happen all right paul going back around to you what's your second film
2: yeah, so I guess we're gonna still stick with the uh, the narrative features for now, at least. Um, my next one is called Eight for Silver, which is a Sean Ellis's new film. Um, it's set in the late nineteenth century, um, and it's um, it's almost a retelling of the werewolf um, kind of mythology. And I think it's a fascinating genre movie. Um, it it sort of reorients that kind of werewolf tale as like a, a tale of of penance, really. And it's it's about like um, this colonial town who um, they take over and slaughter a, a group of gypsies that are living um, in the town and um, there's a curse placed upon them. And then all of a sudden um, this weird creature starts showing up in their town and their children start disappearing. Um, and then Boyd Holbrook comes into town. It's kind of essentially like a monster hunter type. Um, and it's this interesting balance of like, it's like a, period horror drama but it's also got some action and sort of more high genre stuff going on but i found that bounce really interesting i think that this is some of the best pacing i saw in the entire festival i think like it's a movie that is like like reaching upon 2 hours but it i think it really flies by um the period detail and like all the costumes and the visuals is kind of insane it feels like the budget's not very big but that it's so maximized like it all the like it it looks incredible like this town is like on point all the production design is like really really well done and all the small little details but um yeah it it balances that the drama that comes along with this family sort of like struggling with its children and this this father um who's really again i think alistair petrie plays the father and he's struggling with um the ability to reconcile and he's not willing to admit his mistakes of the past and um and later on you learn you know that this is not just this town that this is a phenomenon that's happened a bunch of places with um kind of colonialist settlements and how they're taking over smaller towns. And um, I love that version of the kind of werewolf tale. It's not exactly a werewolf, I guess, but um, the one kind of big thing is I think it shows the kind of monsters a little too much just because the CGI on them is not terrific. I think the design's kind of interesting, but it, you see, you see them a little too often and you sort of start to lose like um, their dread. But like, I think especially like before you see them and I think the actual sequences of like action and horror, that stuff's all really, really good. And it's like really strong genre filmmaking, which is one of the things I love about a festival like this is seeing these kind of bold genre movies, that, again, are making a lot of like a pretty small budget, um, creating their own kind of twists on mythology. Um, I, there's a framing device that I think is really unnecessary and adds like pretty much nothing to the movie. But like the movie itself, um, I found really powerful. I think Boyd Holbrook is, is really good. And I thought Kelly Riley like really anchors the sort of emotional Um, Tenor of this family, Kelly Riley. I I don't think I've seen her since Flight, which I think she's really good in. But um, yeah, I just thought it was a really good genre movie. Um, It's got some dramatic, you know, a lot of dramatic elements, some action elements. It's mixing a bunch of different genres, um, and I think it's effective.
1: This movie sounds interesting. Um, I I want to check it out. So so does it have like a what? What is the uh, time period that it's set in? Late
2: 19th century. Um, It's in Europe. Yeah, it's actually a sequel to The World to Come. Yeah, KCF like goes on <laughs> rampage, but no. Um, yeah, again, I just think like it's got like just great design and like the little details like that. The fog is really gorgeous. Like it looks really good. It sounds really good. It moves really well. Like all that
0: stuff is on point. Yeah, I was so cl- so. This was would have been the movie that I watched. That was my third. That would have been my third film on Monday night. I would have caught it on a second screening, but after mass, I was just like, I can't take another <laughs> another like two uh, like n- almost two hour. Heavy, I mean, heavy in a different way. Maybe film, intense yeah. film. Maybe I had a nice light documentary. I it's think. a little heavy in, in points. Like it is emotionally like to, okay. like taxing to, to like to an extent. Yeah, gotcha. But yeah, no, it seems like that's the kind of horror movie, if you'll call it that, that would be more up my alley. I think so more so than creepy pasta at least. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a lot of creepy, not a lot of
2: pasta in this one. so that's, that's that. I'm to totally fine
0: it. with that. that, that <laughs> I'm good with that. Less pasta, the better. <laughs> Scott, what are you going to talk about for yourself? Yeah, we turned off our 40-year-old voters now, or our listeners, our Italian listeners are clicking <laughs> off. It's like a, it's a disaster
2: <laughs> yeah. in here. Yeah,
0: they're, uh, they're all lining up outside my you know Boston <laughs> near the North End apartment to, to storm the castle. Uh,
1: so for my second choice, um, I am going, so Paul chose his most anticipated of the festival, which was the World to Come, and my most anticipated was Passing, uh, which Scott, you alluded to it earlier. Um, that it has been purchased by Netflix. Um, this was my most anticipated for a couple of reasons. I read the novella by Nella Larson in law school, I actually wrote a paper partially on it, weirdly enough, um, in law school. Um, and I think it's a really interesting story that is rife for some modern day commentary on race. Um, and uh, and also, you know, the names attached to this thing, uh, stars Tessa Thompson, Ruth Naga, um, and it uh, is directed by one of my favorite actresses, Rebecca Hall, um, and it's her directorial debut. So all of these things were, you know, adding up to what I felt would be an interesting film. And yeah, I don't think that this hits the the depth quite of the novella. It's it's strange to say that because right, the novella is only ninety five pages long, but it packs so much into those ninety five pages. I think that um, even this movie at hundred minutes or something is is not quite getting there. Um, but I think, uh, you know, from a technical perspective, it's a really gorgeous film. It's in black and white. Um, I think uh, the score by Devante Hines, aka okay, Blood Orange, you may know him as, um, I think is is really really good. Um, and I think Ruth Nega in particular stands out from the cast for me. Um, <laughs> she has a really strong um, presence, I think, which fits this character. So the story is about um, two women in New York um in what era like the, the 30s 20s. I the twenties yeah um in the twenties um, tessa thompson and ruth Naga playing the women they're they're old classmates and former friends of each other they reconnect um tessa thompson uh is so basically tessa thompson learns that uh, ruth Naga's character claire has been passing as a white woman because she's a light skinned black woman um and that her husband who's played by the always very evil, um, Alexander. <laughs> Without <Skarsgård>, fail, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, does not is a, is a racist, uh, you know, very virulent racist, and does not know that she is passing as um, as as white and that she's actually black. Um, and you know, obviously, she would be in great danger if that were the case. Um, Tessa Thompson's character, um, Irene, also, and this is one thing I, I think isn't quite explored quite enough in the movie is that there's a lot of stuff about her passing as well in. the the book. And I feel like we don't quite get a lot about that in uh, the movie um, because there's some stuff about her, you know, passing for convenience sake and stuff like that, even though she kind of looks at Claire with a little bit of a side eye and um, also doesn't really want discussions of race to really go on within her household. There's, there's recurring stuff about her kids learning about, you know, lynchings and kind of the current state of affairs for black people in America at this time. And she's all against it. Well, her husband is, uh, feels very differently. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, all of that is interesting. Uh, I think the film is, is well done. Um, I was, I was gripped throughout. I do think the ending is interesting because it's not quite as ambiguous in the, as in the novella, what happens at the end. Uh, but I think it would have been hard to, do this in the film basically i think it would have been hard to do the novellas ending in the film and and give it the kind of ambiguity i think i don't know I, I feel like it's it's almost impossible to sort of not offer some sort of answer as to what happens at the end of the movie um and rebecca hall certainly tries to do that i think the the one drawback of the film for me is like rebecca hall's direction maybe isn't um quite as stylish maybe as i i wanted like i, I don't know i just feel like it kind of drifts into the background and uh, it really is more about the performers, the story and themes, which are already, you know, interesting to begin with on the page, right on the novella, just sort of translating those into the screen. Now, it's a pretty straightforward telling of the story of the novella. Um, and and so I think she's not really bringing anything super flashy or new or putting a fresh spin on the story or anything like that, which would have been interesting to see. But again, when you have performers this strong, when you have, you know, technical aspects this strong, when you have a story with such contemporary ideas, I think just translating that directly to screen is going to create for an impactful experience. And I did find that passing was that. Um, and I look forward to watching it again on Netflix. Cause I think this is one that uh, could, could grow even on rewatch for me. Um, I think it's a, uh, it's a strong film.
2: Yeah. It's funny. You don't, you actually didn't even mention my favorite part of the movie. And I think to me, like I, I mean, I'm always blown away by him, but I think Andre Holland is like one of the great working actors. Yeah, he's great that we have as well. today. Um, and he just has this presence about him on screen that I can't really, you know, put into words, but I just think it's so special. And every time he's in a scene, I just want that scene to go on forever, you know? Um, and he's, he plays Tessa Thompson's husband. And I think he is really, really incredible in this thing.
1: Um, And also, uh, Bill Camp shows up, not enough. (laughs) <laughs> for my liking, because I love Bill Camp, but uh always great to see him. Yeah.
2: This is like one of the most Bill Camp characters that he's played to. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of a hilarious
0: amalgamation of his. Bill his Camp was too track. audible for, for Scott in this one. He he didn't have his West Virginian accent on at <laughs> this time. So.
1: I, I just wish. Yeah. What did you guys think? At, yeah. Yelling at helicopters again. That was
2: electric. Of the black and white and the boxed in 4-3. Like, because I, I, I think that, like, I like that painterly quality that it was going for. But, like, I almost wonder if that will sort of like be seen as a gimmick kind of almost, and not like central to the story. I mean, I think it does add an interesting element of like the black, the, you know, the black and white passing stuff. But um, I thought it was like a very cool stylish thing. Netflix apparently like loves auteur driven black and white, <laughs> black and white uh, dramas. Um, but I, again, yeah, I, I like this movie quite a bit. Um, I do again, like Scott said, I think a lot of the emotional stuff is kind of left on the page and it feels like the kind of novel that's hard to translate like it feels like a lot of those kind of intangible emotional stuff um, is hard to access and hard to translate on screen. But I do think that, yeah, the direction lacked a little bit of that um, emotional tension that something like this really wants and needs, I think. Um, but again, I, I think it looks and sounds really good. Um, it's, you know, well acted across the board for sure. Like I think the two leads are, are great too, but yeah, um, There was just something about this that was missing a little bit. I think it's really technically well made and I I think it's great that um, I mean I don't know if people might not even know this but Rebecca Hall's grandfather was a black man who was passing as white and so this is like a part of her family lineage. Um, I remember I I obviously thought she was just white for the longest time and I didn't realize Um, but like I think that personal touch you can feel that a little bit but um, yeah some of the emotional stuff didn't quite get to the level that I wanted to
1: Yeah I don't disagree with that
0: yeah, for for me I, I just kind of thought this movie was fine. Uh, I I think that the score, the some I guess the, the sort of like Mank-like features of the movie felt felt really good, right? Like the score the score I thought was really effective, maybe even the best part of a the A lot movie. of it's not
2: even score though cuz it's they're using the Homeless Wanderer as like a recurring motif in the music and like most yeah, like, that's fair. there is, there is like obviously like some really good piano, piano work from Devonte Hines, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is that Homeless Wanderer sort of looping back and forth throughout the movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that that's that that's a good point. It is definitely the same motif being reused over and over to good effect. Uh, certainly good effect there. I think that the cast is good. Andre Holland, I'll watch him. I'll watch him in anything. <laughs> I'll I'll watch him like look at look at like just look at something if, if that was if that was the option given to me. He's just that good. Um, I'll watch him watch basketball. How about that? I mean, that's basically what High Flying Bird is, right? So. Very reductive of a, one of the great films of 2000. No, I really like that right. <laughs> I'm saying like he's ultimately he's he's an eight. He's like a basketball agent, right? So yeah. Uh, anyway, um, look, it really good. To, but yeah, for me, I just felt like this film was like emotionally like blunted for some reason. Like I just didn't get not not necessarily thematically, but I didn't emotionally get too much out of this movie, or definitely not as much as I wanted to. And I found that really disappointing. I, I found that. Like I had read like the like the premise or like the synopsis primer whatever going in about what the film was about and you know basically the description that I got like just it just wasn't what I felt uh, when when I watched the movie like it talks about like these two women's like dueling interest in each other's lives and like becoming obsessed with each other and like I just did not I didn't get that feeling like it didn't feel to me that like one side of this relationship was as obsessed as the other it definitely didn't feel like a two way street um, so maybe that was just like my fault for having preconceived notions about the film is going to be going into it. But I just felt like really, you know, off put by that. Cause it really did feel like there's this one person who's trying to. Maybe in some ways sort of, I don't know, symmetrically reinsert herself back into a community, which she has longed for in the years since she decided to sort of abandon that and go a different I
2: direction. Think the, the other life. half is like too much of Andre Holland saying that that's what Tessa Thompson's doing, but not like seeing it. Yeah. Feeling yeah. It yeah I mean, like he's he like his character mentions a lot like that she's become obsessed but it doesn't feel as like he I felt more totally
0: obsessed with her than, than she did <laughs> to, to be honest to me um but yeah I, I don't know it just it just seemed to be lacking something there if it was supposed to be more of a two-way street and you know if, it, if that is to be believed then it, it just i didn't feel that coming out of it and so yeah. i was left a little bit um i can understand where the ending goes maybe because I, I could feel that sort of like you know emotions that I don't want to go into spoilers, like the emotions that Tessa Thompson's Irene was feeling like I, I can see how the ending goes goes the direction it does. I just felt like I was lacking something along the way. Um and yeah, yeah. Alexander Skarsgård stay away from him. So, <laughs> oh, wait,
2: after mute, after
0: mute, he can never play the hero again. They're like we saw how this went, The so we we'll, never <laughs> go back. Canceled. Um all right. I think it's my turn and I will start ushering us towards uh the documentary territory. With a discussion of a movie we already talked a little bit about earlier, and that is Flea, the world documentary grand jury prize winning film. It is based, I shouldn't say obviously it's a documentary, it's based on a true story. What a dumb thing to say. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh and not it, only is it
1: based, it is in fact a true story.
0: Yeah, it's more it's more this, although it does have an interesting hook where it in some ways, I guess you could say it is based, because ultimately it's just it the film is set up in a way where it's essentially You know, about this person retelling the story of his childhood um, and teenage, adolescent years and so on and so forth. And so um, basically it is about this family of uh, Afghanistan refugees who are trying to make their way um, to a safer place in the world and start a life there, uh, particularly Sweden, uh, where they have some extended family already. And uh, along the way, the journey is is not linear, is not straightforward. They find themselves in Russia for many years and trying to find some way out of. But they're now stuck in Russia with no money, um, trying to figure out a way to get out of Russia and, you know, more towards um, Su- and not more towards but to Sweden. And I the hook of this is that it's not just a document. It's an animated documentary.
2: I was going to say, are you going to mention the fact that it's animated? Well, no,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to forget about it, but, you know, because it's just like Isn't not striking like a, at is all. Is it a rotoscope? Kind of, not
2: really. It's not. like It doesn't look like it. Doesn't look like something like tower. It's it yeah, is like I was, more. I was, I steam, it. It's more seamless. It's a little more seamless. I think.
0: Yeah, it, it, I can definitely see how you might get that impression from like watching. I don't know if you got that from like watching the trailer or something like that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's there's a little bit more. I guess there are a little bit different going on there with the animation but I did find it really interesting it, it does intermix sort of real life generic historical footage that's appropriate to you know the thing that's being talked about but uh I really thought like thought that hook was interesting not that it was just that it was animated but it's this notion that like it's literally animating these interviews that these two people are having and then flashing back to a- animated sequences that you could say maybe like you know you know fictionalized uh you know retellings of those of those stories that you're hearing narrated over basically. And, you know, it's a long journey. It's a hard journey, but I just found it really compelling, I guess, overall to have this sort of like really what felt like, um, you know, like what's the right way to describe it? Like almost, um, agenda free narrative of like what the, like the actual process of like trying to get from like refugee experiences, trying to get from one place to another, how, you know, arduous or winding that journey might be and you know whether or not that like you agree that this is you know an an okay thing to do or how they went about doing it or what their experiences were like this is what their experiences were and this is what they had to go through and it doesn't sugarcoat uh very many elements of this the only drawback of the film uh in the animated style uh, granted there's not really a good way to tell the story uh, you know authentically because you can't put you know put yourself in a real life scenario that they're describing um that would be true to you know, what was being described, because otherwise you'd just be fictionalizing it, basically. But the animation of certain sort of flashback sequences that I think that if they were shot in live action would just be like incredibly harrowing and overwhelming, just like felt sort of like blunted. Um, There's particular scenes where they're on like one for one on a boat, for example, that I would feel like if I was watching this in like live action, it would feel so claustrophobic. But something about the animation quality has made it makes it so like oddly beautiful. Um, which I just found like kind of a, like a weird emotion to feel it when I can like think about what that would be like if I were there in real life and it would just be like, I think really that's kind funny. of what it was going for though. Like it, I don't know if yeah, it was maybe. trying to be overpoweringly emotional.
2: I think like it was obviously trying to make an, emo- tell an emotional story, but not in a way
0: that was like focusing on that emotion as much, I guess outside yeah. of certain moments. Yeah. It, it just felt like a disconnect to me between like what I was feeling and what I felt like the experience was like, because I think it's trying to give you like a really authentic portrayal of the experience, but then like, ultimately you just have to rely on being told what it was like rather than actually feeling what it was like. But that's, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. I think with the, with the documentary and the, and the maybe a limitation of the medium, um, at least to an extent, but overall I found it really affecting. I found the comp, you know, the, the complexity of this individual character and, and, and honestly how he feels about his own life, um, as well. I found that to be really interesting. Um, and you know, this, is not one of my favorite necessarily like my favorite films of the festival but i think that it was different um it was going for something different and then even in a category that can feel very samey in some ways when you're talking about like documentaries about like heavy topics or real life events like this felt different and and i really enjoyed it and appreciated it for that for that for that reason an interesting theme to me is a bunch of
2: documentaries even some that we're not going to get the chance to talk about at the festival had animated sequences in them like even ones that are for the most part, very live action. Like yeah. there were interspersed animated sequences, which is an interesting trend I'm noticing in documentaries the last few years is using that as sort of a, a method of, you know, if you don't have access to footage of an event, retelling it by way of animation is more interesting than just having the camera on somebody as they talk about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. This was one of the like most well-received films of the Like I saw critics and fans alike were really flipping for this. Um, I, I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was like really emotional and, yeah. There's a moment, especially so interspersed. You kind of mentioned this, but throughout there's um, there's some like live action footage, like not just like the animation stuff, but it. And there's a moment Historical near the footage. end. Um, well, I mean, not even there's even like more sort sort of present day from time to time. There's one sort of near the end where it sort of transitions from animated into live action, and that really hit me hard. Um, I thought that was like a like a really emotionally kind of invested moment for me. But I think it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you you didn't really mention this, but like. The fact that he's gay has, like, this sort of overtone as well of, like, an extra sort of level of difficulty for him telling his life story. Yeah, Um, And it's interesting because a lot of it is animating him sitting in his apartment, like, talking to a microphone, talking to the guy who's, like, creating this documentary. So there's, like, almost a double narrative there. Um, And it's interesting, the fact that you know that it's him telling the story, like, there's not as much, like, narrative tension, but I almost think it's more emotionally fulfilling because you get to hear him really talk about how he felt and what that was like and, um, him reflecting on it because I think thing, you know, some experiences in the moment are hard to contextualize. And yeah, the fact that he's able to reflect on this stuff makes it so that like, he sees it from a different perspective. Um, yeah. and he, you know, in some cases he's like more willing to be like, Oh, he makes concessions about, I'm sure the, these people had difficulty doing this. And, um, there's one really sad moment where there's a, a person he met along the way that's important to him that he doesn't remember the name of. Yeah. Um, and that's just another example to me of like what that immigration experience is like, especially when, you know, it, it happened because of the Mujahideen sort of uh, warfare going on in Afghanistan. So it wasn't like it was a planned, you know, immigration trip. It was, it happened, you know, spur of the moment and they had yeah. to just get up and go. Um, I, I, I found it really affecting. I, it's not one of my like fa- absolute favorites, but I think it's really, really good. I think people will really be emotionally connected to it. I could, I think it's pretty likely to be nominated for best documentary at the Oscars next year, if it comes out. So um, definitely one to watch out for, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all that. And um, really would be interested to see how I feel about some of the, some of the different parts on on a rewatch, which is not something I usually say about a documentary, but I think there's a lot to, to digest with this and yeah. Animating the, the sort of the double layer of the, of the narrative around, you know, telling the story To his friend like what's I think why that works so well is that part of the emotional journey for this character is that this is the first time he's telling that story like he's you know he was told at some point in this process of you know trying to get to Sweden or a country where you know he could live a life of that's a little bit safer than the one he had in Afghanistan to say the least um, was that you can't talk about your past you can't talk about ever where you're from. or you could be sent back there. Yeah. That's an
2: aspect of, of his life too. And that's so common for so many immigrants that have to escape this way is even their loved ones, they can never really tell, like tell them or share what exactly happened. He talks about an experience with an ex boyfriend that, where he sort of revealed some stuff and it was used against him. And that struggle is really like really emotionally affecting, I think. And I was like, damn, like that was a gut punch. I think to think about, you can never really share that, like so much of your life with people and you have to pretend like, um, these people are or aren't there that are you know that maybe like their you know their status might be up in the air i think
0: but mm-hmm. um, that really moved me i think yeah absolutely Scott, any any comments about this
1: no i just know you know it won an award and uh you know i i did a once over of the film that's how i got to look at the animation but um it's a little bit further down on my list i guess than some of the other stuff that um i've heard you talk about
0: all right, Paul, why don't you get the documentary train rolling, I think, with uh, your final film? Yeah, a documentary from someone who we're not used to seeing documentaries from
2: Edgar Wright's uh, newest film, not Last Night in Soho, but The Sparks Brothers, um, which is his documentary um, about the kind of pseudo-legendary, you know, your favorite band's favorite band, The uh, Sparks, um, who everyone thinks of as this band from the U.K., but they're actually from L.A., and this is, like, one of the more ambitious music docs I've ever seen because – they have like 21 albums and he covers every single album. Um, and like that doesn't work, I think, with a lot of different bands. But Sparks, who's a band I honestly had never heard of before watching this documentary, um, they reinvent themselves with every album. And I think the way that it, this explores that is fascinating. Um, it's like such a great love letter to them, though, I think, where it's got all these great interviews with these um, these different talking heads. I could have used, I could have went without Edgar Wright putting his own interview in there. I think that might've been a bit much for me, um, but I just think it's um, a lovely encapsulation of everything their career's about. Um, and the biggest thing that I think is the, big, the through line for them is like um, this constant innovation and they're always iterating on their sound and their style and they're never satisfied um, staying to one specific, you know, even the, the popular sound of the day, they don't st- uh, stick with that there's fascinating stories there's there's a story about how they were supposed to make this animated musical with tim or this musical with tim burton that they were writing and they had been in talks for a long time um and finally i don't know if you guys are familiar with this but there's a new film starring adam driver coming out called annette that's a musical directed by leos carax who did holy motors and they oh, wrote the right. screenplay I for it. like i didn't know like a band wrote that movie and like it's so crazy because like that's looked at as a pretty prestige project and like you hear all these stories about these failed movie projects because they're big cinephiles like these guys like they reference someone like Jean-Luc Godard to compare themselves as artists and um to see that like finally like you know at the end of the doc it's like you'd learn that it, that's sort of happening and it's so exciting because um to see them finally have their film dreams realized in that way I think is is I mean obviously the film hasn't come out yet but the fact that it's been shot and pretty much finished like that's fascinating and it's it's again like such a great love letter to a band I didn't know about. And I've listened to like three of their albums since then. And I like really love all of them and they're so different and they're all kind of different styles. And um, it's just clear that Edgar Wright knows them really well because the doc feels like, like their career. Cause it's, you know, it's making all these, making all these gear shifts and changing. And it talks about how, um, you know, they had ups and downs and then back ups and back downs. Like I think more than any other artist in music history, like they've been counted out and then they've come back. Um, in, in really exciting ways. And they're still working today. Like they started in the, in like their, uh, I think 1970 was their first album. And like they released an album last year and they're still going and um, still evolving, which is so impressive. And um, I don't know. I just think you can feel those peaks and valleys along with their fans that they're interviewing. And some of their fans are like people like Patton Oswalt and Flea and all these like kind of big celebrities that like all really connect to them. And, um, you know, being able to discover a band along with having a great documentary is like such a great kind of double treat for me. Um, and I'd love to see Edgar Wright make more documentaries. Um, in the film, he sort of alludes to having, um, taped some footage from like some, one of their concerts. So like maybe that'll be a concert film one day. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, this is, I think really great. It's, um, got that you know, the, the editing is, is not maybe not as kinetic as his narrative features, but I think you can tell it's an Edgar Wright movie from how well it's paced and how well it's structured. But, um, I just thought it was a terrific, terrific documentary. And like, honestly, like up there with my, maybe like one of my favorite Edgar Wright
1: movies. Yeah. I somehow did not even know that this film was coming out until I started seeing people talking about it at Sundance. Um, I had no idea about that Edgar Wright was directing this type of movie. Um, And it sounds really great though. Like, I mean, obviously I love music. I like the sound of what this band is and what they represent to a lot of artists. I've never heard of the band either to be, to be frank, but you know, discovering music is something I absolutely love. So um, yeah. Another one I want to check out, add it to the list.
0: All right, Scott, how about your last film to talk about?
1: Yeah. um, So I have a documentary as well. uh, And this is probably, this is definitely the best movie that I saw at Sundance Cusp. Um, directed by Parker Hill and Isabel Bethitcourt is just a really eye-opening documentary about the lives of these three teenage girls, Brittany, Autumn, and Alani in uh, Texas. Um, And, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around this film and sort of the documentary ethics of it almost, and um, whether it uh, is it's too exploitative. I guess the, these girls situation that they're, you know, that what should they really be filming certain things or, you know, is this the time to put the camera down and actually, you know, try to help this person. But I mean, I think that's what they are trying to do by making this film is, um, is, you know, raise awareness about, you know, sexual abuse and physical abuse and um, you know, a lot of things that, you know, a lot of these dark things that teenage girls are having to face nowadays um, particularly, well, I mean, all across America, to be honest with you. Um, and I think that for me, like, I didn't have any ethical issues with the film. I think it, there's not really, like, it's more what they talk about that is the disturbing part. It's not necessarily stuff that you see, like, happening. Um, you know, the shooting of the guns and stuff is, you know, one thing. But you don't actually see, like, abuse really necessarily going on. It's more than talking about it. But I think you know, this is kind of the thing that a lot of people have latched on to about it is the way that they talk about it is that it's just so normal and so routine and such a um everyday part of their lives that they don't even really think about it. I mean, they're they're talking about actual rape happening multiple times in the movie, and it's just like, you know, it's it's just another piece of gossip, right? Like you know, it it, it might you it might as well have been, I don't know, I was trying to think of some other stereotypical piece of gossip. But the point is the, the gravity of of that, you know situation is diminished because it is so regular and routine in these girls lives something that stood out to me as well was sort of just their positive attitudes throughout a lot of the film despite what they're going through um like i i don't know how they're able to remain hopeful and optimistic despite some of the stuff that they've had to undergo but like Every time they meet some new guy, which happens a few times in the movie, it's like, oh, this is he's the one. Right. He's not like the other guys. And there's, all you know, that that, that insistence, which I think speaks to the immaturity somewhat, maybe of the subject matter uh, or of the, you know, kids. But and the guys um, are
2: often of a certain age and it is not often yes. of the same age as the women. No, not, not at all. The girls, I suppose, I that are in this film.
1: It's Wooderson from Days and Confused, I guess. Oh, but yeah no um I, I think that um this movie is just a really eye-opening look again it reminded me of like catherine Hardwick's film 13 um which is obviously a narrative movie but um and just totally unflinching like I think that uh you know th- this is not a film as much as I liked it as much as I admired it and that I'm gonna return to because i think get a lot because i think it is hard to watch just like 13 is as well um but I think this is you know a story that needs to be told these are multiple stories that need to be told. Um, and I think it's a really fascinating look at sort of the cycles of abuse that, um, you know, these teenage girls have to face. You know, we, we see that a lot of times it starts in the family, right? They don't have a father, or their father is abusive to them. Um, it's just there's not any positive male influences in their life, really.
2: Well what? Uh, I mean, is it autumn, is it autumn that has the war her That's dad her dad dad all right. Like he's yeah, a good he's he, right. he can't, can't leave his house it seems like cuz he's on some sort of breathing mm-hmm. machine but like yeah, he, like yeah, and, Autumn's and Autumn's it sucks cuz yeah. he's clearly like so he can't be as active in her life as like you would want him to be obviously as a father so it's like he's stuck in the house so like it doesn't really almost doesn't matter he's a good father cuz like he can't really yeah. be there for her in the same way I guess.
1: Yeah, but uh, I think this is, uh, you know, again, a really eye-opening film. I hope that people will watch this, even though it's not easy to watch, even though it, you know, spares no, um, I can't think of the word that uh, I want to say, but um, it doesn't hold anything back. It doesn't hold anything back. Um, And, you know, it really tells their lives for what they are, which is often pretty sad and grim, but... um, I think, you know, suggest, offer some suggestions about why that is the case, and hopefully maybe how we could make it better. So I think it's a, it's a strong piece of work, and yes, it does have Linklater vibes. I have to throw it in there, just, you know, t- my token comment. Um, I, so I think I, I appreciate the film a lot.
2: Beyond that, I mean, I heard this comparison going in, so this might be why it's framed this way, but it did have some Mining the Gap energy for me in terms of like a film about the failure of men, of, about masculinity and like about a specific sort of um, social issue to overcome. This is like slightly different because again, like um, this is about sexual trauma and like that's a, a really difficult thing to talk about and to see, um, but I think the way it explores that is really moving and like, yeah, like you kind of mentioned like it's so uncomfortable how casual all of this stuff is. Um, and the way they describe it is if it's like, you know, so-and-so's dating this person is the same thing as going through these traumatic experiences. Um, I did want to say, like, the directors are also their own DPs, and it's weird to say that this, like, is a, looks good because some of the scenes are really harrowing, but, like, in terms of visually, some of, like, the golden hour sunset photography and just, like, the overall look and polish of the movie, high contrast at certain points, like, it looks really good, and I think that's eases you into it a little bit. It's not as, like, bracing 24 7 you know the entire film is not all like that um so it does have like that sort of painterly quality along with the very kind of difficult um struggles of their actual kind of social interactions
0: yeah it's like it's like that film where if you like just put it on in the background and you like were doing other things while you're watching it and not really listening to it you'd be like oh this is like a really nice like feel good film like it's like a hangout movie with some beautiful yeah. sunsets and people hanging out and then all of a and, you also start uh, listening to it
1: the story behind the film is also really interesting because yeah. like the filmmakers literally just were at a gas station in this part of Texas and the these girls rolled up and like there something about their energy just like caught the filmmakers eye. And so they ended up like hanging out with them for a night and then it turned into, hey, can we actually make a movie about you guys? And I think, you know, again, access another- is
2: great. Like maybe this is right, part yeah. of them being so young is like the, the stuff they're willing to show and say like and say on camera is honestly wild. Like I was I imagine, shocked.
1: You know, again, I, that that story is, you know, interesting and not necessarily surprising though because I think like again, that that openness, it speaks to like these they consider these people to be friends, like the filmmakers. That's yeah. why I think they were willing to, willing to open um up like that because maybe they just they just not didn't even necessarily have any concept of the larger implications of making this film and what that would mean.
2: Oh yeah. Cause I mean, honestly, it might not affect their lives that much when you think about the way, how like sort of small their bubbles are. Um, Yeah. One thing we didn't touch too much on, but it's a big theme. of This movie is how towns like this, but that don't have a lot to do sort of force people to turn to alcohol and drugs because there's literally nothing else to do. Um, And at such a young age, like there's people, you know, do it like just banging lines of Coke at age 14 or 15. And, um that scene is so normal and even one of the girls talks about like that she she she's been getting drunk all the time because she has nothing else to do and she doesn't want to feel other things and it's like you know it's almost like drugs and alcohol as like both an escape from the horrors of their lives but also like as a sort of a prison to trap themselves in to get stuck in um that tension i think is really interesting and even like some of the adults don't feel like adults um I think like they, they're almost like stunted growth in a way because of the social. Yeah, mom. Ailani's Ailani's mom. That's what I was thinking, yeah. thinking yeah. about. That it's like she doesn't like. I don't know. Like she doesn't like feel as kind of realized as you know you would sort of think of a mother as being. But you know, it's it's not easy to just expect people to grow up in these kind of circumstances all the same. And
0: yeah, yeah. For me, this is. I mean, this is one of my favorite films of the festival. Um, just kind of throw that out there. Like I just found it really striking. So many different elements. Uh, of of it like I mean obviously the the candor but casualness of everything they talk about Paul you like I think you put it perfectly like they're talking about these instances of sexual trauma or sexual violence as if it's the same as oh yeah like XYZ person's dating you know ABC person now like I think that was like exactly the way that I'd describe it it's like it's just a normal accepted behavior and and, and accepted not in like that it's okay but like it is just a reality of existence that they realize that in order to move past
2: like they know, you know it's messed up
0: it's not like they think it's okay like they're yeah. like man guys are just there's, not, there's nothing
1: they can do though yeah. yeah.
0: exactly and i think that's that's one of the things about me where this like where this documentary really switches gears from just being about like oh like look at what these girls like have to go through in their in their daily lives and more switches into a different gear which i think makes it a more you know insightful or, or more important documentary maybe it's just like and then i guess tying back to what you were just saying paul it's like the reason why maybe they do all these things is yes, like to deal with their lives and to entertain themselves, etc. But it's like, this is also like a way they can like assert any sort of like autonomy over their lives themselves, like they can choose to do those things, right? Like, if they, they don't have any sort of autonomy in their relationships that, that they have, right? They're being ta- like, well, I mean, taken advantage of is maybe not the right way to phrase it, but like they are being abused and traumatized in, in their interpersonal relationships with men. And so in order to uh, in assert some sort of autonomy over their relationships or like in those relationships, especially they're not over, but like in those relationships is to do these things while they're in these relationships or while they're outside of these relationships too, for that matter, which I just found there, really interesting. And there is a great visual metaphor of there's, there are these dough
2: that are in this fenced off area and it's like totally yeah. like the young girls as the kind of wide eyed doe that um, maybe even have aspirations outside of this. But um, um. They're f- they're fenced
0: in and boxed in by their environment. Yeah, yeah. I felt I don't want to say that was on the nose, but it definitely. Unless you just like totally, to- totally. Turn I think your it's better think it's hard.
2: than the uh, than the three billboards uh, deer scene. I'll just put it that way. <laughs>
1: the only yeah. bad part of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good film. Yeah, we, so yeah, we are not, we will not stand for this three billboards <laughs> here on some <sunlight>. like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, C- Cusp was a really remarkable documentary i i definitely can on the surface understand people's like qualms with it being made but i think that and i think again we're also
2: 320 guys in their like in their 20s like if you're a woman and you feel differently like i think that's like more than valid
0: (laughs) yeah totally totally i mean i think there's lots of question marks around like I mean, not, uh, not, I mean, consent obviously is a huge part of this movie, but consent to understand like what, what you're being a part of too. And in terms of filmmaking, I think that's definitely a big question mark. And they definitely don't have adult supervision or guardians who I think always know the answer to that question either. And Um, it's, I think it's, it's key that besides
2: obviously like the one mother, you don't really hear from adults in this movie. Like it is just the kids pretty much.
0: Yeah. I mean, do we even meet, I don't even remember meeting Brittany's parents. Like she's like never at home anyway. Um, like ever, <laughs> she talks about the conversation she has with her parents about her wanting about them wanting to her to come home every once yeah. in a while, and she's she's like fourteen, <laughs> yeah, or like fifteen wild. or something like that. It's like crazy. Um, anyway, last film to talk about staying in the documentary space. Another one that I found, um, a really just compelling look at an experience that, you know, hit at least somewhere in the zip code of experiences that I, I've had before, and that's a documentary called Try Harder, uh, which is mm-hmm. about. Lowell uh, high school in San francisco which is a very well-known high school for being you know a prestigious um you know school for people to go through and land at you know top colleges and universities throughout the country it's extremely competitive uh parents of you know students who go there are often uh, we will say helicopter helicopters <laughs> um making sure that tiger their, moms, yeah, moms etc uh, making sure that their children are you know giving 150 percent day in and day out to be able to go to the right colleges and have the best um, jobs coming out of college and be the most successful they can be. And this really just takes, takes a look at that kind of culture, the culture of, you know, uh, college admissions at an elite level on the student side of things. And I found that, you know, maybe it's not a relevant documentary, like, like universally. I mean, that's like a super obvious thing to say, probably, because it's a very, you know, well, somewhat niche experience that they are dissecting. But I just found this like both in terms of the way it was made and the way it was portrayed these students and the way, honestly, it portrayed like the culture around the school itself to just be really compelling and also strike, you know, a personal, you know, emotional note. Uh, Not that I had these particular experiences, but I definitely have put those types of pressures on myself in the past, Um, even if they weren't necessarily like, you know, asserted on to me by anyone in particular. Like I felt like some sort of need to accomplish these things both for myself, but for the people around me as well. And Debbie, Debbie Lum, who is the director here of this film, who, um you know, just does a remarkable job, I think. And, and it, to connect it to something like Cusp and to be talking about it for Cusp is like, she clearly just has like a very deep connection with these students that she, that she follows over the course of their senior year of high school. Um, obviously I think, I would imagine I shouldn't say obviously, but I would imagine her relationship with them is a little bit different than Parker Hill and Isabel Betancourt with the people from um, from Cusp. But this film still feels like a deeply personal story, but is all but you also know that it's it's true for a lot of people who go through this experience, at least at Lowell, if not on a wider scale than that. And I just found something about this like really arresting um, the way it was made. It just reminded me so much of a lot of my high school experiences to the even down to you know, the relationship that these students that at least some of these students have with one of their one of their teachers, uh, Mr. Shapiro, who I just found like, you know, as someone who, you know, grew up without a dad, like finding a father figure in a teacher during a formative time in high school. um, Like I just really felt similarly to how a lot of those or at least one, at least Alvin in particular felt um, with his relationship with Mr. Shapiro. And I just found that really moving um, in a way. And I, I, I never really, It's not something that I think that, like, traumatized me or I've, like, lived with uh, too much, but it definitely was, like, super formative in my experiences and, like, who I've I've become. And seeing that depicted on screen was surprising, um, but also, again, really compelling for me. But I I know some people might feel differently, but I just found this film really, really, really compelling and important uh, for someone who had had similar experiences.
1: Yeah, well, Scott, if it reminds you of your high school experience, then it very well may remind me of mine as well. <laughs> we went to the same high school, so maybe uh, so. Yeah, I look forward to watching this. Sounds great.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I almost wonder if Mr. Shapiro in this is married to Mrs. Shapiro from American Vandal season oh. one, um, but no, um, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> um, I mean, yeah, a lot of this like is pretty familiar to me. Honestly, like I didn't go to a high school like this, but. as far as having, you know, the Asian parent high expectation education thing is like very real and very serious. And like, especially among my peers and people around me here, um, that was such like, it echoed so much of my experience as well. I think like there's a moment in this movie that, um, to me typified the whole kind of movie and it's Alvin finds out he did not, uh, he did not get into UCLA. Um, he calls his mom to tell her about it. Um, he calls her he tells her he didn't get in and they just hang up right away there's no hello there's no whatever it's just call direct hang up and like it feels like the kind of transactional relationship um that these parents have with their kids almost and i don't you know it's it's kind of unfair to um to judge them too hard in certain ways but i think that like a lot of this difficulty about like the immigration experience and how those parents become like specific types of parents like is really kind of heartbreaking to think about how these kids have to go through these things that, um, you know, they're basing their self-worth on what college they get into. And it's like, that stuff is pretty brutal. I think also like, it doesn't get totally into it, but I think the stuff that Rachel deals with, with racism, especially at a school like this is like very real. Um, Like being a a black student in like a environment that doesn't have, have a lot of black students and you're succeeding, like, People like that is totally a thing where people will assume that you only succeeded because of your race and because of all these other things. And um, there's some interesting ideas where they sort of get into some affirmative action stuff. Don't totally get into it fully. Um, But yeah, just, you can feel the environment of this kind of pressure cooker high school. And like the expectations for these kids is is ridiculous. And they even still like so many of them, um, you know, they get in certain colleges and they're great schools and like schools that I would have loved to get into, but to them, that's like crushing that they didn't get into Brown or Cornell or Stanford. And um, it just, it's a bummer. Cause then it, you, you can tell that they bring that, they carry that baggage into their college. You know, if they're going to like UC Santa Cruz, they might not um, think of it as like an, a thing to celebrate and something to be excited about. Um, and the kids are so socially awkward too. Like, you know, you, yeah. you have that sex ed class where like they're trying to crack these awkward jokes and they compare everything to school. And it's like, Of course, these kids like connect everything to essays and projects and stuff because, like, they spend so much time on that stuff. And it's crazy when you like you see the pep rallies and everybody's like dejected because they all they care about is what college they get into. They don't care about you know stuff like high school sports, which like a lot of schools like that's a big focus. So um, it's a fascinating. I mean, this is the heightened version of that, obviously. But there's again, I I think there's a lot of universality with this and the the Asian American. Mm Um, school experience with with parents who are from um, originally from their home countries.
0: Yeah, that's one element that I guess I didn't really touch on is that the a lot of the premise of this school is that there's there not like not only are a lot of the parents like you know tiger moms helicopter parents etc. It's particular there is a particular subtext of ethnicity t- being tied to mm-hmm. a lot of what's going on. Um, both from I mean I think there's there's lots of threads that they pull on they don't see all of them to to conclusion which I think is one thing that I. Would have liked them to to dig deeper on, although he probably could have at that point just made like a a, a whole mini series, a docu series out of it, probably. But uh, I yeah, this was really really good stuff. I think that the Q and A actually having you know I think three of the like they had Rachel, um, ser- is it Serena? I think I can't remember the the tennis player's name off the top of my head. Oh, I forget. Also, yeah, but now I know who you're talking about. Though. Yeah, I'm sorry.
1: Serena Williams. Yeah, I know it's crazy.
0: She went to Lowell High School, and she's like <laughs> only a junior in college right now, apparently. Um, and uh, I is it Ivan, who's the who's a really awkward tour guide. Yeah, um, he's amazing. <laughs> and, and then and then Alvin, who I think is really he he was the standout for me, not because I thought like I particularly resonated with his experience, but just like I think that his awkwardness manifests itself in him just being like just like purely authentically himself, like a hundred thousand percent of the time. Oh yeah, his um, dancing is is iconic. Yeah. Uh, I would really,
2: love to see. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Michael Apted's like seven up series where like they revisit. Yeah. I would love to see these kids in seven years, see what their lives look like, see how like they've sort of changed. If you know, if any of them are have like changed career paths or if they're closer or more distant from their parents, like that would be fascinating to me just because like it, this is such
0: a tense moment in their lives. You don't know what's going to come next for them.
1: Give them yeah. the hoop dreamers treatment.
0: Oh, yeah, man. Look, all you got to do is go watch the QA because it's been three years since the film was actually shot because it was shot in. I think they were class of 2017, in high school. Yeah. So it's been actually quite a few years to listen to them talk about what their experiences are like now in <laughs> remote learning environments in college. Is uh, it was definitely interesting, um, and how they feel about the decisions that they made too. It was uh, it was interesting to to hear them talk about that? But yeah, the so the full treatment there, like if, if Debbie Loom does go Lum go back and you know find them wherever they are and and maybe film some sort of like installment based things, I think it'd be kind of hard to. I mean, you could stitch that together as a movie, absolutely, but obviously they're going to be in disparate environments and having different experiences. And, and one
2: of the fascinating things too, is like the sort of the kids, the movie almost leaves behind, like the kids that don't get into any of these big schools, like their kids that get totally shut out from all their college choices. Yeah. And they're talked. They, they briefly talk about how they worked like their asses off and ruin their social lives. And like their mental health for not like almost for nothing. And like to end up like, you know, for them, like at a school they could have got into with, without even doing any of that stuff. So it's like, it's pretty heartbreaking to see like, you know, the ones that succeed are the ones that we remember like, you know, Bradley Chu getting into Stanford and Harvard and all those other schools, like, as every valedictorian violin yeah. player, incredible, like, social, like, that, yeah, just, like, that pressure of that ideal is, is tough to, to live up to.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's so interesting to also include some, you know, the likes of, I think it's also Sophia, not Serena, uh, just realized that. Yes, I was gonna um, say that,
2: that, that does make sense. Yeah, and then shop,
0: right? but the inclusion of Shay, mm-hmm. also, to go for a Sophia, crazy, like, this girl is, like, the editor of the newspaper, the captain of the tennis team. Um, like she works at this like ice cream shop. Like that, that girl was crazy. I have no idea how she like was also able to be like as successful a student as she was. Cause I mean, I yeah. assume the school is like crazy. Um, but Anyway, the inclusion of Shea was such a really interesting one because for the longest time, I didn't really get why he was being so cl- Like, obviously, he was, uh, you know, he was on the accelerated path and in quotation marks there because he was taking classes with seniors, uh, the physics class in particular. But then the end of the movie, which I don't want to spoil, I think it, it really, I think you understand why he's a part of it and, and let alone like a, a quote unquote twist at the end of the movie or whatever, or in the, the documentary, but also just like the, using him as a proxy for like someone who gets to a little bit cl- more closely, like observe what is happening mm-hmm. uh, as, as seemed you know, like as a sort of like, I don't know, free body who's who's not going through that, that particular moment in his career at Lowell. Um, but like, he gets to see that a year before he actually experiences. It. And I think that seeing how his vision or view of it shifts over time is, re- is a really interesting one that one I didn't necessarily appreciate in the first half of the movie, but came to appreciate more in sort of the final act. All right, guys, I think that does it. That's nine movies uh, from Sundance that we talked about right there. Uh, definitely would recommend checking out all of those when they do get a wide release. But to wrap things up, uh, as Scott mentioned, he only got to see a handful of films at the festival. But Paul and I were psychotic enough to see, you know, around 30 each. So we did have a top 10 list to tick through here, Paul. Um you, know, you can add additional thoughts as as appropriate from your perspective because I know we didn't necessarily just talk about our our most our most favorite films from from the festival but why don't you go ahead and and go through your top 10 from Sundance yeah I'll just kind of round out
2: the ones that we haven't talked about just because I think we've said enough sort of about some of the other ones that are yeah, the rest of the ones that are in my top 10 um, all light everywhere which is like the fa- my favorite thing we didn't talk about which is a fascinating documentary by Theo Anthony who like made a terrific film called rat film a few years ago and it's looking at body cams and, um, sort of like the surveillance state through by way of, um, our vision, like and the way our vision has developed as a species over time. And like, he takes these ideas and puts them together in such a fascinating way. I thought that was terrific. Um, Faya Dayi, which is a movie I would have loved to talk about, um, an Ethiopian documentary. It's just hard to describe really, but it's this dreamlike, it really, it's a transportation into, um, the lives of these Ethiopian farmers who they're under this oppressive regime. So they don't really have a chance to sort of um, have aspirations beyond what they already kind of can, can adhere to. Um, I was really moved by that. Some of the most interesting and like distinct filmmaking I've saw at Sundance as a whole um, rebel hearts, like, which is like this, you know, wonderful story about um, the women at immaculate heart college talking about their struggles with trying to um, kind of be a radicalized version of the Catholic church, which is obviously a struggle Um, on the count of three, um, which you know i think was was mixed in some parts but i think Christopher Abbott's incredible um, and that movie is like never boring at any point i think so that that's one that i really stuck out summer of soul which is kind of weird we didn't talk about it because it might be like the biggest you know kind of winner besides coda out of the festival um i thought that was really entertaining and this great cultural experience that they shared um, and then homeroom which is you kind of mentioned it earlier um this fascinating it's this graduating class as they're coming into their final year and they have to struggle with both, like the pandemic sort of randomly breaking out, and then all like also like the 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 protests and social unrest over the summer. Um, it really definitely takes that turn into all the way their lives change, and I, I was really, um, like really moved and, and interested in the stuff that was going on in the documentary. So those are really the standouts of the rest
3: for me.
0: Yeah, for me, I, I did actually make a list. I'll just tick through. I mean, you talked about Hive. That was my number ten. My number nine was Flea. Number eight was a film called Wild Indian. Is a narrative mm-hmm. film. Um, that I found just like really emotional and and very profound and that it was made um, by a a Native American filmmaker about this experience where, you know, on, um, you know, following a a kind of overtime starts when the main character was a child um, and follows a sort of like really unspeakable act of violence that happens early on in this, in this person's like he, he is the one perpetrating it. And then basically fast forwards, you know, 20 plus years into the future and you see, you know, basically having to wrestle with that past, even though it is 20 plus years um, in in history. I think that it has some flaws to it, but it's a really strong film. That was my number eight. My number seven was In the Same Breath. uh, And I said like breadth, like breadth of filmmaking, uh, In the Same Breath, which is a a documentary by the director of One Child Nation, Nanfu Wang, about the outbreak of COVID in, specifically in China, but also makes some comparisons um, to the way uh, it, the coronavirus was handled in the US. And I think it makes it, it has some really interesting points to make about those two things. And I think that's where it kind of separates itself and maybe makes uh, Nanfu Wong such a, such a great documentary filmmaker. It was also the case for One Child Nation. Um, making these connections that they're, she's not just telling a story about this thing that's happened. She's making connections to other cultures and to other, other ways and approaches of thinking about things that I think are not necessarily immediately apparent and actually provide lots of fodder for, for, for thought. Um, So I really appreciated it for that. My number six is um, a coda actually. Yeah. So coda came in at number six for me. Number five is on the count of three. I'd echo that Christopher Abbott is electric in in, in that film and uh, couldn't recommend it more highly. It's a really interesting, um, I guess, direction directing and acting from Jared Carmichael as well. I think that he's not the standout, but it seems like he has a lot of really interesting ideas and he knows how to make a energetic, exciting movie to watch. Cause I definitely echo what Paul is like saying. Safety's light really. I think. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I saw those connections being made that I, I didn't necessarily think that during the film, but I a thousand percent agree with that assessment in retrospect. It definitely is, has a lot of that energy. My number four was all light everywhere, which is the documentary that Paul was talking about. I really appreciate what Theo, how Theo Anthony constructs the story that he's telling here and the narrative of his documentary it really feels it, it kind of speaks to my more like academic side of, and, and in college and, you know, being a psychology major, it's talking a lot about psychology or at least referencing a lot of uh, psychological topics. And it's also the. it feels very structured as if it were an academic paper itself. Right. Like, obviously, it's not the exact same because that wouldn't make for a very good movie. But the way he structures the set up the sort of study that he's doing and then what he views as sort of like the outcome of of his analysis. I found this to be really interesting way to set up your story. Uh, not one that I see very often. I really want to check out rat film, which was uh, his, his first documentary that he made. My number three is mass. My number two is cusp and my number one is try harder. So that's my list. And I think that will do it for episode 128 of some like, It Got. big. Thank you for, for, to paul oyama for coming back on to do another episode with us
1: we can't we can't Actually, make him an official uh, next
0: week again no i'm just kidding
1: i was about to say we can't make him an official co-host because uh, his name is not scott but
0: yeah that's true. co-host
1: yeah paul oyama
0: yeah if you can do something about that we can yeah, i got off scott free
1: i guess of that one so Oof.
0: Hey. Hey, all right and that's why he's never coming back no, i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> all right uh guys uh, any socials you, you want to shout out or paul Uh, Yeah, just follow me on Letterboxd, really. Search my name, Paul Yama. Um, You can find me on
2: Twitter, too, Paul underscore Yama, but mostly Letterboxd, just if you want to find out what I'm watching, what I'm thinking about, what I'm watching. Yeah.
1: There you go. Scott, what about you? Paul was on First Cut, also. Check out First Cut. They have great stuff on their channel. Um, Yeah, uh, at Scarby Dent, Twitter, Letterboxd. Yeah. I I would like to just note that at my uh, best of 2020, since the episode just dropped, I. You know, have to throw out my entire list now because uh, Nomadland (laughs) is definitely my new number one after seeing it last night. But, you know, I kind of thought that that was going to happen. I think I even called my shot a little bit on the episode. to To be frank, like as much as I love Possessor and think everyone should see that film, Nomadland is in a league of its own for me from 2020.
0: Yeah, I was half concerned that you'd spend all of your time on our Sundance podcast talking about just Nomadland you'd be like yeah, actually this is a good film but I'd like to go back and, and talk more about Nomadland now because uh, but we will have a anyway, podcast Nomadland in a couple <laughs> weeks <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and you can find me at you know Twitter letterbox. I think pretty much everywhere at shelton 2013 you can also follow our podcast on Twitter as well as um, on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods there's a bunch of different reward tiers check it out subscribe uh, and support us however you can if not, that's okay. You can still find us on pretty much any podcast service, Apple podcast, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, where we re- appreciate if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that stuff. And I think I have said enough. We will be back next week with a double review episode to make up for all the reviews we haven't done. I guess a double review of Malcolm and Marie, as well as Judas and the black Messiah, which did debut at Sundance though. I don't, know if any of us watched it there Paul did you watch it there I waited because there's distribution yeah yeah HBO Max coming out uh, next week actually I guess I've time this release like a couple days so keep an eye on that we'll be talking about those two movies next week and so until then for Scott Harvey and Paul Oyama I'm Scott Sheldon we'll see you next time